छात्र अमिस्त्रोबीन हजार Okay, I'm drawing a line in the fucking sand here. Do not read the Latin. Hello, welcome to Don't Read the Latin. Uh, we have a fantastic episode. Oh, um, and my wonderful co-host. Hello, it's me, Rias. <laughs> we have our 100th episode. And it's taken five years uh, to get here. I'm very excited. And for that uh, 100th episode, we are going to do the five movies that made us. And we're kind of going off of the horror genre. Um, there, there might be some horror in there, but we're uh, definitely looking into other genres and other different types of movies. Um, but for that, we have a bunch of guest stars. Uh, and on today's podcast, we have... Hi, I'm Jillian Benters from Gothic Charm School. Hi, I'm Monty Ashley from the Incomparable Podcast Network. I'm Jeff Harris from Fanboy News Network, the podcast that gave Jen the inspiration to do this podcast. And I'm Handsome Husband Jim from right here in this living room. On the end of the couch. On the end of the the couch. couch. (laughs) (laughs) So, no. Yeah, so I said that it's the five movies that made us. Yep. Um, we are going to skip um, the what have we seen lately, uh, just because we have a lot of people here. <laughs> and we're going to st- skip right into uh, what are the five movies that made us and just roll that out. And I'm going to make Rias go first. Mm. Okay. Well, the first thing I want to say about this podcast is that it's really hard to choose just five movies. Oh, it's not a pressure. Because I think we're all basically an aggregate of everything we experience. And if you watch a lot of movies, there's going to be a lot of movies that had an influence on who you are. So I know that Jen had a really hard time narrowing it down to five. I think she's at, what, 79 right now? <laughs> Very close. <laughs> Something like that. I was steady at a top six that I was going to do regardless. And then I have an overflow of 23. I'm kind of in the same boat. My theory is I brought enough extras that if someone else talks about one of my movies, then I can sub in in a different movie. Oh, what a clever idea. I'm so clever. Everyone says so. You are. (laughs) Look how clever she is, is what they say. She's embracing a toad. Of course she's clever. She's a very sweet toad, and he's my only friend. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) The fence in the room. So, uh, the... So I'm going to start with my number five movie. And I've got two lists. On one list, number five is Female Trouble. On the other list, number five is Dangerous Liaisons. That's Mm. quite a range of movies. Nice. I'm going to go with Dangerous Liaisons because it, although Female Trouble is a fine piece of cinema, Dangerous Liaisons is a movie that influenced me in a lot of ways when I was young and possibly too impressionable for my own good. (laughs) Um, And the things I loved about that movie that made the impression on me were the the level of viciousness that one can get away with if one is witty. Yes. Um, 
I absolutely loved that. Um, and also, of course, the dresses. Oh, the not, dresses. Let's not be fools here. There's some amazing clothes in that. Um, and the movie says a lot. I think it's still pretty valid. It says a lot to me about what it means to be a woman in a society that does not value you as the, in the same way as men are valued. The power structure is just completely... Completely different as a woman, yeah. Yeah, unless you're Glenn Close, in which case, <laughs> there's good trouble on the horizon. Um, there was a time when I was probably, I think, believe I was in my 20s, when I took that movie very much to heart, and oh. probably did some horrible things to people, because I had my two best friends were these two incredibly gorgeous men, with no sense of morals, and I could kind of commend them to go out and do things, and it was... You were living the dream. The dream. <laughs> but it was also terrible, and I realized I was a horrible person. But oh my god, the power. <laughs> <laughs> I love that movie very much, but let me just say this. Keanu Reeves' worst movie performance. Yeah. You were not wrong. Yeah. Really? You think worse than Dracula? Yes. Mm. Yes, actually. I mean, no, he's supposed to be well, callow and foolish in this movie, but he's using the same voice as in Bill and Ted's. Dude, yeah. the opera's sublime, don't you find? <laughs> oh. It is true that... I'm so glad he's he's recently found his new niche. That I believe that is the reason that one of the oldest houses in the Camarilla was named House Sublime, was specifically because of Keanu's reading of that line. I thought we... I thought... I thought that was common knowledge. Wasn't... I think it is, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> was the assumption I made. Right. Well, yeah. it wasn't my house, but I was... Well, we were always quoting that movie. You know how some people get really into Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Oh, God, yes. Take the liaisons. this movie off my list real quick. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with that movie. I absolutely was one of those kids. I was one of those people. But... I was the same way about Dangerous Liaisons. I was totally obsessed with it. I knew all the lines. I still have this awesome wraparound scarf that has like a bunch of the letters from the book written on it. Oh, I am, I am a nerd. So anyway, it left its imprint Many on us very strongly. So that movie left a huge imprint on my life and unfortunately on the lives of those around me. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I was living with your best friend at that time. Yeah. No, this was this was when I lived in Oregon. Yeah, when I was, was when I was up to the real out. nonsense. That was down in Oregon. Okay, I met you guys. Well, you know what? That influence must have carried because <laughs> while I was living with your best friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, so. things happen. Um, mine are not in any specific numerical order, but my list. You followed a very strong. Yeah. I had a very strong criteria, which is basically I kept it to movies that I saw before I was twenty-one. Because there are many other movies after that which are huge influences on my life. But basically, up until that age, I can kind of say these are the things that directly influenced how I turned out right. and who I turned out to these, be. These are the movies that cast the die. Yes, so in that, the, the very first movie I want to mention is The Wizard of Oz. Because they're right there, my childhood ambition on the screen. I'm going to grow up and become the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm going to live in a castle. I'm going to have flying monkeys. I'm going to avoid having houses dropped on me. That's very important. And that movie is also the movie that gave me 
what I can what I can remember as the first image of cinema that scared me. Yeah. Which is the the Wicked Witch of the East feet curling up and drawing back under mm-hmm. the house. Yeah, that's that, pretty creepy. That terrified me as a small child, which is, you know, again, the I'm not going to get a house dropped on me. Little girls from Kansas stealing shoes that are rightfully rightfully mine, damn it. Yeah, stay away from my shoes, bitch. Yeah. So so that is the the movie right there that had the most direct formative influence on on Tiny Tilly. I dressed as the Wicked Witch of the West for Halloween for every year, actually. I dressed as Cher or a vampire. Nice. Both of which allowed me to wear a long black wig and a fur coat. <laughs> Aesthetic. It's the exact same costume. One of them I had fangs, one I didn't. Uh, hi, it's Monty here. Um, I was not born with the name Monty. I was born with the name Paul. But when I had to... I'm going somewhere with this. When I no, I'm just my, shocked. <laughs> when I logged on to my first BBS in 1983 or 4 at like 300 baud, this Woo. was an era when everybody picked weird screen names. Ah, yes. I remember the, B- the BBS I first logged on to, there was a guy named Scarecrow, a woman named Girl Midget, there was Mad Cutter. I chose the name Monty Python. Oh, And yes. eventually that took over, became my nickname, and then my legal name. And so I am going to say Monty Python on the Holy Grail on the grounds that it is a movie I have seen literally hundreds of times. I don't quote it constantly anymore out loud. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes I see a look in his eyes and I know. Don't watch it with me. It'll be infuriating (laughs) because I will be saying all the lines along with... Along with, or like that half second before? No, along with. The okay. timing is important. <laughs> you and Dad can watch the movie together. <laughs> There's no need I... to watch it anymore. Well, I've, I've seen it enough that it is in it. You said the theme it's was... part of your DNA. Yeah, you said the movies that made us, Monty Python and the Holy Grail is absolutely a part of me. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Me too. I was late to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I didn't see it until I was, like, 19. But it, like, when I moved away to, like, go to school, it put me in this social group where Monty Python was that bonding Mm -hmm. with everyone. It it gives you this instant dialogue and, and a connection with people that's amazing. So, let's go to Jeff. All right. So, my list... Just so you know, the order mm-hmm. depends on how early it got locked yeah. into oh, the list. Okay. Um, again, I was working on the, okay, what influenced me? Unlike Jill, I didn't limit it to prior to 21, but I was looking for things that either influenced aspects of my personality or influenced my appreciation and understanding of certain things. With that said, the number five movie, because it finally uh, secured its spot last night, Mm -hmm. uh, after having a vicious war with the Princess Bride and Alien, was the haunting. Alien is going to win that. (laughs) No, because she just princess. The haunting. Ooh. Yeah. The haunting won out because the haunting was, and it's interesting because the people who really introduced this to me were Rias and Jeff. <laughs> and we'll do that. Uh, and for me it was that it opened my eyes to the potential of horror. 
uh, certainly defined my taste in horror movies, what I prefer. Uh, and it had a really lasting impact on me both as a storyteller uh, and a, uh, uh, a writer and just in presentation in the amount of restraint it had is as uh Rias told me the first time she sat me down to watch it it's the scariest movie that won't show you anything yeah. mm -hmm. uh -huh. and that locked in and so it was just and and i have seen it so many times since because it's a, a eminently rewatchable film uh -huh. and within it it's always the watching the even in the broadest characters, there's amazing nuance. The maid, who uh, you could argue is the, one of the broadest characters in the movie, <laughs> still there's there's real nuance in how she acts. No one will come any closer than town. Yeah, it's so. Yeah, it just just when I look at those movies after that that I like to watch in the horror genre, that's where yeah. the blueprint came from. Um, it's funny because Rias isn't to blame for anything in my top five, but Rias is responsible for a whole bunch of movies that are probably in my top 20 of movies that mean something really important to me from when you worked at Vertigo Video. Um, the fact that you introduced me to The Changeling, that you introduced mm. me to Anatomy of a Murder. Oh, that movie. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there was other stuff that you recommended to me that helped influence my taste. So, thank you. I'm a taste maker, baby. You are. All right, Jim, it's up to you. Okay. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I am going to invoke my prerogative as the person who edits this show to uh, <laughs> throw in a little extra here because one of my things is, that's very formative for me is from the era of book and records. Because when we were kids, uh, for those of you who are young, we used to have uh, 45 RPM records or on cassette sometimes, but little books that would have dialogue that would go along with it and you'd turn the page when you heard the chime. And when you hear the chime that sounds like this, ring! Yep, turn, turn the, the page. page. Yes, so we would read along with that and that was, uh, since VHS was, was like an expensive thing. Very expensive, yeah. You'd have book and record. So, uh, one of the things that I had was a Batman cassette that had four different stories on it uh, and uh, was basically like an old-timey radio drama. Uh, it had, The first one of which was Batman Meets Man Bat. And again, one of the things that we've talked about is that things were scarier for kids when we were, when we were kids. Like... The kids are kind of shielded a little bit from horror inside their their media nowadays. Whereas when we were kids, it was like, oh yeah, Gremlins. Gremlins was a kid's movie. Uh -huh. uh, you know, this, this thing uh, scared the hell out of me. Because I am listening to a thing that has Batman on it. And it's like the Adam West Batman kind of, kind of feel to it. Sure. Except at one point, at the very beginning of it, Batman and Robin are fighting bank robbers... And then all of a sudden, this shrieking monstrosity comes over my speakers. <laughs> and I know now that it is just monkey noises, but it still sends a chill down my spine. I am going to play a little excerpt of this oh, for sweet. you now. I want to hear the scary noise. 
Yet not even the dynamic duo can withstand the terrible onslaught of sound for long. And as they drop to their knees... Ha! Seeing this was worth getting beat up for! From every direction, the nightmarish screeching sound seems to surround them until the bank robbers look up to see a frightening form circling above their heads. A creature the size of a man with the unmistakable ears and leathery wings of a bat. There is enough of a screaming adult woman in terror that is going to hit a primal nerve in everyone, especially, I think, in a child. Because that is the sound of your mother terrified. Like, if you have ever, like, I mean, because that's all you know as a kid is, well, like, your mom. my mom was a man bat. <laughs> a woman bat. Really. And you say we're not actually related by the, blood. What the hell? Uh, uh, I, will, I will tell you, I will spoil this uh, 30 year, 40, 40, almost 40 year old thing by telling you that the Ooh. twist in the episode is that the man bat in there is not Kirk Langstrom, <gasps> but in fact his wife Francine. Yes, and then it ends with a it ends with a man bat on man bat fight. Now, can I ask a question? I am not going to go look on Ao3. No, is this a movie? No, this was a that was an audio cassette. Okay, so so (laughs) that was my my special thing. But that it was formative for me because that was one of the, the basically the first time that I can really remember being just terrified of media. I would honestly skip that section of the cassette. Play either the other side of it or just fast. Actually, the the second one on that was was the Scarecrow, which wasn't like the fear gas Scarecrow. It was a guy who dressed up as a Scarecrow in the middle of the moors, and it had Russian agents and stuff like that. It, it was it was legit like scary too. So like that whole first side was like nuts. No. But what are you going to do? Not listen to Batman? You got to listen to Batman. So, yeah. So I've got to say one of my favorite things. Um, Another inspiration for me in starting the podcast was Shockwaves and Killer POV out of L.A. Um, And Rebecca McHenry in her top ten for the year inevitably picks something that isn't a movie at all. It'll either be a series, a TV series, or something else that she's found. And she fucking flips the uh, theme on its ear and is like, God damn it, this thing is important and I don't care if it's in, in the vein at all. So congratulations. Unless somebody else here has that same kind of thing. So that is your. I do still have five movies, but I'll save one of them really briefly because it's easy, and that is Avengers. Avengers is a wonderfully formative movie for me because out of all of my years on this earth, I have wanted that big budget superhero movie, and the Avengers and that one moment where the camera spins around Uh. them as they have all assembled in the middle there, that was for me and a whole bunch of other nerds. I'm sure that was like the moment where. The, of wish fulfillment, where I finally got that big digit moment. And of course, Endgame 2 being the fulfillment of all of that, that's like, holy crap, how did I deserve to live in this timeline sort of thing. But None yeah. of you got to sit in the theater next to him when Cap actually says... Avengers Assemble. And hear the, the soft sobs coming oh, from my husband. That's awesome. <laughs> it was beautiful. Oh, all I can say is same. Anyway, so now it's my turn. Your turn. So I'm going to start um, uh, with the first movie I was brought to as a kid that I was actually brought for me to see it, um, and that was the Muppet movie. Um, I, I got to see. Um, I got to see um, <laughs> Up in Smoke on my mom's knee. Fairly confident that I wasn't there for my entertainment, seeing as I was three. <laughs> but um, the Muppet movie, and, and the thing is, is, you know, 
even before seeing the Muppet movie, I was very familiar with Sesame Street because I am one of those children that was raised on Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And so I was very familiar with Muppets. And then my first big screen um, is the Muppet movie. And it's everything I love. And it's everything that makes me happy and makes me feel safe in the world because very honestly, the rest of my childhood wasn't. And um, what I love about having Henson as a child is that brought me to the Dark Crystal. Mm. And that brought me to Labyrinth, which introduced me at a very formative age to David Bowie. And his and, tight pants. And his tight pants. I will be talking about that later. So <laughs> I am not, because even though Labyrinth is a, a, an incredibly, I mean, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth are both very defining movies, but the, the, that starting point is the Muppet movie. Um, and it was funny and adult, and, and I miss... It feels like everything, Jim talked about it a little bit earlier, about how children's entertainment, and there is still some fear involved, because I think people realize they can make things darker for children than they than they do. I think it is less so now, um, but I also see less of a combination of adult and child, where it is a mix for both of them. Uh, you know, there are a lot fewer things, I feel. Everything's that, much more strictly like, genre separated you know, at this, this point. This is for mm-hmm. children. Yeah. This is for adults. And there is, you know, there is a, a, a middle ground in there, but it's, I think, smaller. And I, I miss how much pop culture and people and, and adult entertainers um, existed in, you know, having Steve Martin show up, have having all of these, you know, huge people in the 70s show up in that movie. It, it was just... I don't know. I mean, it, it, it created people that I looked for later in shows and in movies. And it's just very much, it created a love. Um, you know, I remember watching that, uh, the special uh, for Henson's birthday that he passed away, I think, three days, two days after it aired or even oh, before yeah. it aired. Um, and I don't, there's very few people that I can look at that have created things that have had such an imprint on who I am and what I like. And the fact that so much of his stuff was adult and funny and dark. Mm-hmm. And and I love that he gave that to us. So There's a terrific article on NPR's website uh, by Linda Holmes. It came out it came out recently or today as we record this. Well but the thing is we've just hit the fortieth anniversary. Yeah. Right. And she's talking about show. exactly that thing about how the Muppet movie is for kids, but it's full of it, jokes for adults or mm-hmm. references for adults because yes. kids don't know that Steve and Martin is ripping on Steve Martin, and they don't know who Edgar Bergen and Charlie yeah. McCarthy are. Right. It's a movie f- for kids. Yeah, it's a movie that doesn't talk down to children. And, yeah, and I really like that about it. And it's genuinely touching a lot of the time, like Gonzo's song about how oh, it's going to go back there someday. I still cry at that. Or there's a terrific duet. Do you remember how much we fucking cried when we saw it in the theater? Oh, when you and I went to one and of the, uh, the special. It worried people because we were just at a hard part in our life, and, and then we there both were the just it's sobbing, just sobbing. Well, I remember seeing the 
Muppets, the movie they did a few years ago yeah. that was trying to revitalize the mm. franchise. Oh. And towards the end of that movie, Most when all of a sudden they're singing Rainbow Connection. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. it's not that movie, but it's going back to that childhood place of seeing. Oh, no, I started movie. sobbing in the theater at that point, too. But, yeah. Monty, you were right. right. There's a great duet between Ralph and Kermit, who are both Jim Henson. Yeah. Yes. And that song is full of jokes just for adults. Yeah. Things like Ralph. Has a couple of beers, takes himself for a walk, and yes. goes to sleep. Yeah. Now yeah, I have it in my really head. Fun. Yes. It's yeah. such a good movie. It's just, it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, now we're on to round two. My next movie, <laughs> the number four, not on my list, <laughs> is a film by a gentleman named Russ Meyer. Oh. And I use the term gentleman very, very loosely. If you're not familiar with Russ Meyer, there are two things that he had to have in his films. The, the right one and the left one. boobs. <laughs> the larger, the better. If you had breasts larger than Russ Meyer's head, you were in any film he would make. It was amazing. Um, and many of his films are terrible. Yeah. They are just awful sexploitation garbage. But he did a couple that I really like. One of which we were just talking about earlier, which is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is just so over the top and crazy that it's worth watching. It was written by Roger Roger Ebert. And the film I'm going to talk about, which is called Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is one of his more linear films. And it tells the story of three outlaw women and their six enormous breasts as they go out into the desert to do time trials in their awesome sports cars. And then they meet a guy who's out there doing time travel, or time travel, time trials in his sports car. And for whatever reason, they just, they just murder him. And then they've kidnapped his, his girlfriend played by a Playboy Bunny, who I cannot remember her name. But the reason that I like this movie so much is that the main female lead in this movie is Tura Satana. She's playing a character named Varla, and she is almost superhuman. Like, they try at the end of the movie. She, she It takes longer to kill her than it did to kill Rasputin at the end of this movie. They're, like, driving cars over her, and she's just, like, yeah, she's like a Terminator. And you don't see a lot of black-and-white movies where there is a female character that is a complete un... What is it? Unrelenting badass. And having seen that movie, that gave me kind of a prototype of what I wanted to be, because when I saw it, I was at a point in my life where I felt completely helpless. And I had a lot of stuff going on. And that movie, I think, made me into a slightly stronger character, but it did not make me into a person that's going to murder somebody in the desert. So don't worry about that. I got that stuff from the doors. Who goes (laughs) to the desert? Yeah, I can't handle heat at all. Well, Rice, with, with that, I would think, you know, unrelenting, but also unapologetic. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, she's yeah. clearly the hero, even though she is a monster. She's clearly the hero, even though she has come to a farm owned by an elderly man, in order to steal all of his money that he has hidden somewhere. Yeah, it's just a movie that I absolutely love, and uh, and uh, 
will continue to absolutely love. Like, when I was at Comic-Con one time, yeah. there was a booth across the way, and Monty kind of squinted over there, and he's like, is that Vampira? And I was like, and I looked up, and it was Tura Satana's booth, and I just rushed over there and gave her all my money. I didn't even know if I bought anything or if I just <laughs> Throwing it at her. threw money at her. You got that lace, that uh, lunchbox that's signed. You're right. I have a signed uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill lunchbox and a uh, signed 8x10. And, uh, yeah, she was totally nice. That's awesome. Well, she was kind of still a, she was still a scary badass because she had she had a life. She was half half Cherokee and yeah. half Japanese. Yeah. yeah, and she had a really horrible horrible childhood. But she is great in this movie. Not a good actress, but great in this movie. All of her lines are delivered by shouting them, and bless her heart. You ain't gonna find it down there, Columbus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, the movie I'm going to mention, this is, it was one of the ones I was waffling about. It was in a tie whistling, but then I, re listening to Jeff, I realized this is one I have to talk about. And it's actually two movies, because one of my parents' best friends back when I was about nine was a huge Kurt Russell fan. She adored Kurt Russell. And he had this new movie coming out called The Thing, and no one would go see her with it. So she said, I know, it's a science fiction movie. I'll take Jilly and her best friend Jimmy so they can go see a science fiction movie. Jesus oh, Christ. it's a double feature with some other movie called Alien? Came out a couple years ago? I don't know. Let's go see science fiction movies. So I saw The Thing and Alien before I was 10. And... Wow. Yeah. I go for you. <laughs> you know, on the one hand, completely terrifying. Because those were not good movies necessarily to see when I, when I saw A Clockwork Ten, Orange when I, was, right? when I was that age. But those movies gave me a very, helped form my appreciation for practical effects yeah. in movies. Woo, practical effects! Right? Uh, the the amazing set design, and also I can directly trace some of my interest in Foley work and sound design to the thing, because there is never going to be a sound effect better than the sound of that heated wire going into the Petri dish of blood. There yeah. is nothing that's that, going to that, pop that sound. Yeah, the thing, is on, the thing is on my overflow list so, because I saw it and, at a at a sleepover. And both and of these when I was nine. Both How much of these movies, did you get done? Both of these movies are movies that are hugely influential to my husband Pete. Yeah. And so when we started dating, we were talking about movies, and he mentioned you know both of those, and I'm like, oh yeah, I saw them when I was like nine. And he's all, what? Your childhood is way more messed up than I can even conceive of. And I'm like, no, it was completely fine. It, yeah, yeah, I didn't sleep, sleep for two days. But during our childhood, that we are yeah. like, no, that's not abnormal. Today, yeah. people would like, oh my god, yeah. call child protective services. And yeah. I actually find Aliens to be a scarier movie, even though it's an action movie and not necessarily a horror movie, just because there's more of the the facehuggers. No, yeah. facehuggers can't jumping out at you. Facehuggers, they move too much like spiders. Can't do it. But yes, yeah, so that is that is one of my entries. Both of those movies are well. It it was a double feature. I love it. I love uh, them together. Well, I'm going to say Aliens. Ah. The sequel, 1986. I saw it before I saw Alien. Me too. Uh, me too. I was 16. Um, although it's a... I feel like Alien is a horror movie and yes. Aliens is an action movie. Yes. yes. A great action movie. For me, the essence of the movie is has no action in it. 
the sequence from the time the Marines wake up to when they start dying. So right about the line, maybe they don't show up on infrared at all. That whole sequence, which takes like a half hour, nobody's shooting, nobody's getting killed. We do uh, run into Newt, but... And they deploy. Yeah. You know. yeah. But they do such a good job of establishing every one of these guys that's going to die mm-hmm. immediately yes. as a separate yeah. character. We yes. know their personalities. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. Wierzbowski didn't really get much screen time. <laughs> Wierzbowski, you hear their uh, Wierzbowski's name being shouted. Yes. Uh, I think Wierzbowski is the one who was carrying all the ammunition. He was. Sure yes. to have been a bad idea. And the fact that I know that is because I not only watched this movie, I read the novelization by Alan Dean Foster. Yes! On. Yes! It's a great novelization. I need to get a copy of that. Yeah. Um, Alan Dean Foster knows how to write. The, just the the banter of the Marines at the breakfast table, uh, the way you really feel like these are guys... And women who have been around, you have know. Have you ever been mistaken for a man? No, have you? <laughs> you? Like you oh, can see, God, Vasquez I love that character oh! so much. Vasquez and Drake are buddies, but Vasquez doesn't like Hudson. There's just so much extra character yeah. building work in this movie that once the action starts, doesn't need any of that. Yeah, right. Because we but know these characters now, and when one of them thing. gets killed. I hope that's not too much of a spoiler. You actually feel something because it wasn't just a nameless, faceless yeah. character that yeah. was... That that's was one of our complaints yeah. with, with watching... Um, the, the new Alien. The new Alien. The, one, the, the, the latest one that came out. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, not, because not, they not tried so hard. The one hard. that was the sequel to Prometheus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alien Cumberbatch Co- or whatever Co- it was. Co- oh, Cumberbatch. Yeah. Yeah. Because they tried so hard to establish what they established in Aliens. And, and, and there was just... A they, whole they, bunch of nameless, just, faceless... They were human fodder. Yeah. Because you just didn't care. They were dying left and right. Right, and you because just, that's what the movie's about. It's about aliens killing people. But, that's what the kids today are into. But in Aliens, I could rattle off, today. like, 12 characters. Like, yeah. Like Crow. Yeah. Crow, the one black guy on the crew in the group. And then the action starts, and it's amazing. Yeah. But there was a stretch of, like, five years where if I, our role-playing group could have just gotten by with quotes from Aliens and Highlander. Yes. And never yeah, that was pretty much all, all yeah. we said. <laughs> yeah. uh, yep. Hudson alone covers a lot of roles. Oh, yes, situations. he does. <laughs> Alright, so for me, the number four movie is The Blues Brothers. Woo! I love that movie. And the reason it ended up getting that slot was the expansion of my appreciation of music. Uh, because, I mean, yes, at first it's the, oh, it's this great comedy, there's great action, uh, there's some crazy stuff going on, a, uh, I think a mayor or a governor lost his seat because of, uh, in part because of things he allowed them to do in Chicago. <laughs> um, we're out of police cars, how did that happen? So, uh, and today the, uh, line, I hate Illinois Nazis. Nazis. Still as valid as ever. Oh my but God. <laughs> it was getting in and learning who each member of the Blues Brothers band were. They realized that band wasn't just right. a bunch of guys they knew. This was a super group right. of some of the best studio musicians. Yeah, like Aretha Franklin is in that movie. Wow, that, that's, that's that, beyond. That, that like nine minute stretch of music from uh. Aretha to John Lee Hooker to yeah. uh, Ray okay. Charles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all one that stretch, is, and then it's got Cab Calloway, the, and I had never heard of Cab Calloway yeah. before. Yeah, but I think and that changed my life right yeah, there. Yeah, what I'm talking about, you're getting into the ne- the next level. Oh, yeah. I'm talking about. 
the actual Blues Brothers uh-huh. band. Donald oh, yeah. Duck Dunn. Donald Duck yeah. Dunn. Yeah. Uh, Tom Bones Mr. Turner. These were, these were, you know, some highly respected artists that no one actually ever heard of because they were largely studio guys or right. part of other bands. Right. But the Blues, in part because they were characters in the movie, they got some exposure. It's, and then uh-huh. you realize... Oh, these aren't characters they just made up for the movie. These are actual... Yeah, these are real blues. These real are musicians. Legit, legit musicians. And I... Great, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. great history. But then you get into it, and then they have the giants of the genre. Yeah. You have Cab Calloway. You have Aretha Franklin. Mm. You have Ray Charles. You have Johnny Lee Hooker. And getting that exposure to a, a genre of music that I didn't actually have a lot of... Uh, exposure to uh, at the uh, time uh, and it expanded my idea even the years later the really bad sequel oh yeah Blues Brothers 2000 was, was a terrible movie but I was enjoying the music and it the did have some good music in it because again that's the way I went for it, it was I musician. forgot that existed I felt like John Blues Goodman. Brothers was very yeah. much a wish fulfillment Thank movie you. for the actors because they're like we love this kind of music and we want to make a movie that celebrates this kind of music and as long as we're doing it, well, why don't we get the best people in? People we've yeah. always wanted to meet and talk to. Yeah. And Stevie you, Wonder. Is it Stevie Wonder in it? No. 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 But, but Ray, Ray Charles. Charles. Yeah. Ray Charles is in it very prominently. Uh, James yeah, yeah. Brown is in it significantly. Cab Calloway is a major character yeah. in the movie. Yeah. And I had never heard anything like Cab Calloway before. Yeah. I'd heard all the other blues music because I grew up in a house full of that. Can I tell you the realization when I was watching because I, I grew up with um, Matinee at the Bijou on PBS oh, yeah. mm-hmm. where they would show shorts and that was where I saw the early um, uh, Betty Boop shorts that had Cab Calloway Oh yeah, they were just in as a ghost. Yeah, and, um, and, and actually a couple of other times in characters too. And then seeing Blues Brothers and making that realization that... That's that guy. Yeah, and that it had like, this little imprint in different oh, yeah. things in my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, despite all the other... And it's a quotable movie. It's and a it's super fun got, movie. Got sh- you know scenes and action in it that are iconic. But what put it on the list was the music. Mm-hmm. So, that's my number four. Well, let's keep that trend going. Here's a movie that gave me an appreciation for for not a style of music, but just for one particular band. Because the moment that that, that bass guitar starts strumming that line, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and you hear Freddie Mercury say, Flush! Ah! All of a sudden, I loved Queen. Yeah, Flash was... Gordon is on my list. I had watched that movie so freaking many times, watching them play football in in weird alien uh, throne rooms. Enough so that we incorporated it into our wedding. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend that owns the Mingla Merciless costume from that, as yes. well as a bunch of the other brides. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Will he let me wear it? No. <laughs> what kind of friend is he? Watching Terrible uh, one. <laughs> um, God, what was uh, the guy who played Prince Baron? Uh, the, Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton. Dalton. Watching him collect a paycheck. Because <laughs> he was phoning that shit in. I know, well, he's he, actually the, conduced. I mean, he's a classically trained actor. He can act. That yes. was to balance off Brian Blessed, who was oh. yes. acting Bless 12 his. times as hard as he needed to. Also do. my introduction to Brian Blessed <laughs> and his unhingeable jaw. <laughs> <laughs> 
Because that man, his mouth opens wider and he laughs harder. One of my favorite things about the behind the scenes is that apparently they had to keep filming the, the part where they're fighting on the rocket wing. They had to keep filming it over and over because he would he had his laser gun and he would keep going pew, pew, pew at people. And what, so they'd see him, his mouth moving to make the little noises and they kept having to tell him, Brian, stop making the noises. But Just he's point. not going to because he's <laughs> but he, Brian fucking blessed. He kept doing it. He is, Brian Blessed is the oldest man to have walked to the North Pole. He's yep. been on he uh, Everest. He's an amazing, he amazing also, adventurer. Like, he trained yes. to, to become an astronaut. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's done he's so just, much in his life. He is the most interesting man in the he world. He really is. He very yeah, well could really, be. Yeah. And so, yes, the, the, the camp, the color palette... Just all of these crazy. This is a. It's a. It's a. It's a it schlocky, is. campy movie with that's made by an artist. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, it, it beyond that, it's an imprinted a love of you know. There's my love of sci-fi. There's all this stuff, but it exposed me for the first time to Queen. Originally, I thought Highlander was going to put that on there. And I went, wait, wait a minute, no, it was Flash Gordon. Mm-hmm. Flash Gordon was the one that Flash gave Gordon, me. Flash Gordon, yeah, predates Highlander. Yep, gave me the love for for that. So. Flash Gordon. My love for Queen came because I bought a copy of Kiss Alive 2 and it was mispackaged. <laughs> and one of the albums was Queen, News of the World. And we didn't live near a store, so I had to keep it. And then I played it and I was like, oh, wait a Why minute. am I listening to this Kiss stuff? These guys are amazing. <laughs> so um, my, my number four movie is going to be a movie that is... Um, it's... it's, it's it's Ida Scans. It's it's not given a whole lot of respect. Um, Dune, David Lynch's, oh, and 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 how I had a seventh grade English that they did a bunch of Hero's Journey um, mm. movies. It was where I saw Iron Eagle, which I still love. And like anybody <laughs> who says otherwise, yeah, they did a bunch of Hero's Journey movies. Um, they I saw Star Wars. I saw um, Iron Eagle. I saw I saw Dune. And so in the sense of, of movies that might not be um, good translations of a book, mm-hmm. sometimes I feel it, it helps to see that movie first. It gives you an inspiration to read the book. I became the biggest fan of the, of the whole series. And up to about 10 years ago, I used to read through the whole series, like at least once a year. Um, and it was the first thing that I'd read. I think that was that full of intrigue like where you had to have an appendix to the back mm-hmm. with all of the characters because they were so many um but and, and it breaks my heart that david lynch sees that movie as as his hugest failure and almost won't even talk about it um because it you know i mean it wasn't well received um yeah. it was edited um just strangely after the fact but it, it introduced to me characters i mean i think a thing that that helped me become an adult it it it, it sounds crazy but but the idea of the Bene Gesserit and the idea of choosing to be human and choosing to do hard things and um it started a love for me of of these tribal women groups Mm, okay managing and controlling things um that I I don't think I'd ever seen anything in media that presented anything like that um, and there's, you know, been a lot of movies that I've, you know, it's part of the reason why I loved Fury Road was the Vivalani. 
Um, and Dune just really opened the door to me in to high, hard science fiction, which I hadn't really been into. I had started getting into fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the only thing that led me in that direction. And aesthetically, like those still suits. Oh, they're the, amazing. The Bene Gesserit costuming. Like, it, it really the, imprinted the, young pre The production on the production... The production design on that film is amazing. It's it gorgeous. It is. Have you seen the documentary Yudorovsky's Dune? I haven't, um, because I tried to watch it when I was running a very high fever. Oh, you can't have Yudorovsky. It, oh, have it's fever. an amazing documentary about what would have been a ridiculously bad movie. Yeah. It would have oh, been yeah, 24 been, hours but long. But it would have been 24 hours long yeah. and terrible. Th- but sometimes the idea of that dream oh, yeah. is... Well, yeah. There's a moment where Yudorovsky says... He was fury. He was excited that David Lynch got to do Dune because he's the only person who could make a movie as weird as I was going to make. Yeah. And then he saw it. He was like, "Oh, they sure edited that badly." Ah, yeah. that's Dune. That, to me, Dune was one of the first movies I saw that really suffered from fan backlash. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. people expected the book, and you can't put that book the, on movies. That's like a, yeah. That book throws you so much information on every page. It's like reading a technical book. It novel. is. It is. In a good way. Yeah. But yeah, it's just... Yes, yeah, too yeah. much. Too much. Yeah. yeah. Fair. You pretty much just got to do an inspired buy. So, yeah. what's your number three? Oh, I forgot. My number three is going to be completely different than my number five and number four. <laughs> it's a black and white film noir. And it is Sunset Boulevard. Ooh. Ooh. Now, to me, Sunset... Well, first of all, I like it because it's both a film noir and a gothic. It is so many gothic elements. She's this crazy woman who lives in this giant house where the wind whistles through the pipe organs and makes frightening sounds at night. And he wanders into the scene as she's doing a funeral for her pet chimpanzee who has died. And it's... For a movie, it came out, what, 1957? I think so. It's the same year that All About Eve came out, because they were against each other in the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Right. And Born Yesterday, which actually and won. Born Yesterday. But, um... It really <laughs> is a movie that set me on a path of understanding that decadence wasn't entire That decadence, true decadence, has to have decay in it. Yes. It can't... You can claim that you're having a decadent orgy in the style of Rome, but if your civilization isn't going to fall afterwards, you failed. There, there has to be a sense of decay, be it physical or moral. Exactly. Or both, preferably. Exactly. And, that, and I also like that Sunset Boulevard shows the main character that she has decayed and she has fallen apart, and that that is largely because of things that... Because she was so famous, she had so far to fall. Yes. And her her manservant, Max, used to be her director and also her husband. And every day he writes fan letters, fake fan letters to her. Because if she didn't, if she thought the world had completely abandoned her, it would kill her. And I, I love all of that. I love that she is an old woman. Who, She's 51. I know. She's, hey. she's younger than me, and she's Gloria Swanson, who is gorgeous. <laughs> but in the time, she has this young man, Joe Gillis, that lives with her. 
and he's a writer who is just living there because he's desperate not to get his car impounded and she's going to pay him some money and he kind of becomes a kept man and there's a little bit of talk about how awful it is when she takes him in to buy him suits and the, the uh, guy running the store is like well if the lady's buying get them more expensive and yeah I really really love that movie so much I love every aspect of that movie um I love that Billy Wilder, originally the movie started in a morgue. The original first scene was a bunch of corpses in a morgue telling the stories of their life, and then it gets to the Joe Gillis character, and then he starts talking about how he died face down at the swimming pool, and then the movie starts, and they cut that out. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's just an amazing film. Every performance in it is great. It's got a lot of old silent movie stars who don't really have much to do, but they're just... But look amazing. Yeah, you've got Francis X. Bushman, you've got... Um, Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. And, yeah, it's just, I love the movie. I love the style. I love the clothes that Gloria Swanson wears because they're out of, they're out of fashion for the time that the movie is set, but just enough that they have a glamour about them mm -hmm. that you don't see in the 50s. Yeah. And, yeah, everything about that movie I love. Mm -hmm. Sadly, I did not care for the Broadway show. It was awful. But the movie, amazing. And that is number three. So my next movie is also black and white. And this is another movie from my childhood. When I was 10... My mom was diagnosed with leukemia and she went to the hospital right like the week before my 10th birthday. So she was not home for the holidays and dad coped with it as best he could. But so Christmas Eve, we got around to putting up the Christmas tree and he let me stay up all night because he figured I'd eventually crash out and, you know, then Santa could arrive. But the Late 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 Show was showing Arsenic and Old Lace. Oh my god, that's so fun. And that became our Christmas Eve family tradition, which mom was like, okay, I don't quite get this. And Pete is still like, your family's weird, but okay. But the the murderous old ladies, the kind-intentioned murderous aunts, no, no, we're putting these, old, these bachelors yes. out of their suffering they with a cup of elderberry wine. They don't have any place to go. They have no families. So they have to live here in our boarding house and then die. And we bury them. And your Uncle Teddy buries them in the basement. And we treat them with great respect. Yes. And, yeah. And it's just such a great screwball comedy that also the kindly little old ladies who are murderers don't go to jail. They decide to go into an asylum with they're with Teddy. With Teddy, who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, but that is their choice. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world doesn't know they're doing this, just their hapless nephew. And it is it is just one of those movies that means a huge amount to me, and part of it is because right. of the emotional baggage from my childhood. Absolutely. And it's the only thing that I'm not thrilled about with that movie is I think I think Cary Grant could have taken it down a notch. I got a segue. <laughs> He's the hyperactive, crazy Cary Grant, and he could take it down in a notch. He doesn't have to not be completely calm, but yeah. I Go ahead. Well, 
If you're done. Yes, I'm right. done. Uh, that movie is from 1944. Mm -hmm. My movie is a black and white Cary Grant movie from 1940. Okay. His Girl Friday. Oh! Oh! See, I like the super suave Cary Grant who's in charge of everything. <laughs> yeah. I like that more than the frantic Cary Grant. You get arsenic on old lace. Well, see, he's or, my least favorite character in the movie. So. Bringing up baby, he's or, also the yeah, hysterical he's, Cary Grant. He needs to calm down and bring up baby. In His Girl Friday... He is a sociopathic monster of a newspaper editor, and I love that movie so much. It is my favorite movie. Um, it's true. The dialogue goes about three times as fast as any sensible movie would. It's yep. like an hour and a half long, but the script was like a hundred was hundreds of pages. Yeah, it's um, just what what I love about it besides every single line in it and all of the side characters everything everyone says is that <laughs> it is an adaptation of the front page in the front page you have walter burns and his crack reporter hildy who's which stands for hildebrandt hildy has gotten married and or is about to get married and walter has to break up the marriage to keep the, his ace reporter right for his girl friday they made the subtext text and changed Hildebrandt to Hildegard. So right. now instead of a man and a man, it's a man and a woman. And it's Rosalind Russell who has gone <gasps> off, gone oh, off and gotten engaged such a fun movie. poor Ralph Bellamy, who is so on the nose casting that in the movie, Cary Grant's character describes him as looking like that actor Ralph Bellamy. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and Ralph just gets shoved around and never stands up to either. No, of the he's two such a drip. He's you know any romantic comedy has a drip character, but he's the uh, best. He's the drippiest drip. It's the best remake I've ever seen because they changed it so fundamentally and brought out that it's clearly a love story between Walter and Hildy, and they're not. Walter is not good for Hildy. but she comes alive when she's fighting with him in a way yeah. that she doesn't when she's. Hanging yes. out with yeah. the boring guy. Yeah. It's so much fun. And Cary Grant has taken it down several notches. <laughs> and he's great. Well, he'd have yeah. to. Watching Here's Girl Friday, you immediately tell why Cary Grant is a movie star. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's all I got to say. Well, thankfully, I'm not breaking the trend of black and white movies <laughs> with number I three. I not either. But uh, my number three movie is Young Frankenstein. Oh, yay! So, A, it is my favorite comedy yeah. of all time. Um, and a lot of that, and there's several reasons why, uh, as a horror fan, the love letter to Universal just grabs me. Uh, and the performance, I mean, we are talking, it is one of the movies that almost made the list was Clue. Because <laughs> because yeah, of the collection of comedic geniuses, mm -hmm. but Young Frankenstein again, interestingly, with a crossover with Clue, <laughs> with Madeline Kahn, but it is a collection of comedic geniuses coming together to create one of the most amazing comedies ever. And for me, it was a lesson, especially not just watching the movie and getting ingrained with it. Uh, I'm like. Watching Young Frankenstein with me is like watching uh, Holy Grail with Monty. Uh, it is it is in me because I have watched it so many times. I've had people watch me with me and complain. Not that I'm quoting the lines, but I'm beginning to laugh at the beginning of scenes. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but it also was a lesson in how to be funny. Uh, knowing all the work that Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks put into that movie. And one of my favorite stories of all time is the monster creation scene and how the first time they previewed it was horrible. And Mel Brooks knew he could fix that in the editing world. And it was, it's the brevity. You cut out the parts you don't need. Mm -hmm. And so for me, whenever I'm working on something and I'm looking at it and it's like, okay, I know the term is kill your darlings, but I'm thinking of Mel in the editing room of Young Frankenstein uh, taking up the parts that don't work because you're going to have a better product. Mm -hmm. Because like we said earlier, timing is incredibly important in comedy. Absolutely. And there's no better example. Yeah. Honestly, mm -hmm. I mean, put the candle back. Doesn't work because that line itself is funny. It works because exactly when Terry Gar says it. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yet, this discussion is moving me to right now hit the button on buying the movie novelization of Young Frankenstein because I've been threatening to do it for years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it looks gorgeous. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, again, it's it's the... Yeah. Brooks has always been a director that's had a good eye. Yes. In part because he also hires the best. It's... And, uh, go ahead. And, yeah, and the DP on that one is knowing... But the, I want it to look like an old universal black and white. Uh, plus, he knew, oh, the black and white will cover many sins. It's, yeah. the, uh -huh. it's the actual lab set. From yeah, it is. yeah, it is. It's the original. Yeah, he got the, which currently is at the Mopop here in Seattle. <gasps> Part of it is in their horror exhibit. So uh, I, I was very cognizant of that fact when my wife and I went last year to go see it. I need to go there because they're having a, a quarture exhibit that looks amazing. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway, so that's my number three. Uh, Jim, are you going to kill us with you our know, black and white trick? I'll oh. kill you. My okay. favorite thing about Young Frankenstein yeah. is that it is a perfect parody. It yeah. is. You it can tell when you watch it that people who worked on it, people who wrote it, did all the designs for it, absolutely loved Frankenstein. Yeah. Whereas I might be speaking heresy here mm -hmm. there is not very much kindness to the western genre when he does blazing saddles no there is that's not true. yeah it's it and that's why blazing saddles doesn't hit to the level of young yeah. frankenstein that young frankenstein was a love letter to universal <laughs> yeah, really an was. absolute love letter although actually no i'm not going to completely break the black and white trend uh-oh so my next movie that i'm going to going to talk about is being informative is a Godzilla movie. Oh. Now, the first Godzilla movie that I saw was the original black and white 1954 Godzilla at my grandparents' house one day, and I was mildly traumatized at the ending where he turns into a skeleton. But the one that really sticks with me is Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla, a.k.a. as I saw it, Godzilla versus the Cosmic Monster. And the reason why it stuck with me was because it was on Channel 11's late night uh, sci-fi Friday. And it was way past my bedtime, so I set our VCR and I recorded it. And I watched that movie over and over and over because it was like the only Godzilla movie I had on a VHS tape. Um, until I got the original one when they did uh, Grandpa Monster had uh, T on TNT or no, TBS. The TBS Superstation had uh, Grandpa Monster's uh, 
Saturday oh, Saturday yeah. uh, movie movie thing. And you kids today do not know how easy you got it. No, it's <laughs> so easy to get media now. Yeah, and so. honestly, just the act of setting a VCR to record something at a specific time, oh. incredibly complicated. I had to hold down buttons mm-hmm. while, like, 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 hold down the timer button while holding the forward time button mm-hmm. to get it to the. And if I, it was like an old clock. If I missed and it, was it. like Russian roulette. You could be totally wrong and get. Yep, and if I if I missed the time, I had to go go around around again. again. God bless modern technology. uh, His old top loader VCR. So I had that movie. That movie had King Caesar in it, the uh, the uh, secondary monster that helped Godzilla fight. Uh, It had singing, and I kind of knew all of the Japanese words to the song just phonetically because I watched so many times. (laughs) And also, it had old '80s commercials on it. It had, oh, that's amazing! It had old. I, I kind of wish I still had it because it had old uh, Cal Worthington. Oh, go see Cal! Go see no, Cal! And his dog spot. His dog spot. His dog spot. And uh, and <laughs> the the uh, old. I am not we from Seattle. Pepsi free. <laughs> oh, yeah, it had Pepsi free commercial on it. That's oh my why god! I remember that. Yeah, but that movie more than any other it was the last it was the second to last of the the showa era godzilla movies before they took their long hiatus in about 1968 up to the new uh return to return of godzilla in 1984 uh it was the second to last the second one was a direct sequel to that movie but that was the one that i had in my library and cemented i the fact that i wanted to see all the rest of them I also have great memories of that movie because they had a thing called the Wonder Bread matinee, (laughs) where if you had five empty bread bags from Wonder Bread, your parents could drop you off at the movie theater, you paid to get in using your bread bags, and then they would show you a crap horror, I'm sorry, a horror movie. (laughs) And they were, we got a lot of Godzilla, that's how I saw Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Mm, and it was super fun, and it Early on, those those uh, Wonder Bread matinees kind of gave me a love of the genre. Mm-hmm. Let us tell you, kids, the '70s were a really weird era to grow up in. <laughs> yeah, your parents just dump you at the theater with uh, a bunch of bread bags and drive off. Because uh, I, I had a similar thing yeah, growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. That was it. That's yeah. Just because you brought it up, and just because you talked about the time frame, I want to mention um, that that's something that we just became aware of. Criterion is doing a release of Godzilla. All, all of the Showa era, oh. era Godzilla movies. Yeah, and I will say it is like one hundred and seventy-five dollars, um, but it's Criterion, right? Yeah. And it's it's a it's a big full Blu-ray, Blu-ray transfer of every single movie, yeah. like high def, unimaginable oh. special features. Talk to me yes. about that offline. before. Okay, uh, so my strangely enough, also black and white. Um, I have the best years of our lives. Um, oh my god, that movie's heartbreaking. What is wrong is. with you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's find I, out. I love it so much. So when I turned 11, I started um, having visitation with my dad again. And I would go down and stay with them for um, six weeks in the summer. And I didn't have cable at home. So like seeing classic movies on TV... Um, and then, I don't know if I saw it. Then I seem to remember seeing it in high school. So if I did, I would have seen it at my dad's. But I also, when I first moved out of the house, I moved into this tiny cabin that all of my punk rock friends had lived in Minneapolis because they were little individual cabins that had been like 
kind of resorty back in northern Minnesota way back when. Um, and they were little individual studio, like had the little tiny furnace that mm-hmm. had a little stovepipe. And it was 175 a month, and you got free cable. And I didn't sleep. I mean, people would just show up at my door at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning because, well, I can't find a ride home and Jen's always awake. And I discovered uh, Turner Classic Movies then. And um, it it opened my eyes to... Um, seeing that movie opened my eyes to really loving classic film and classic black and white film. Um, and it also was, I think, the very first uh, World War II movie that didn't turn it into a propaganda piece. It really showed... Oh yeah, what the men were coming back it, home to. It yeah. showed men coming home with disabilities, and it it showed all of these families struggling for decent, for or for different reasons. And then uh, what I also really loved is it also really focused on many different women and how they struggled during the war, right? And how their lives were changed um, while the men were out. You know, the, 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 the wife that married right as the man was shipping out, who was married to Dana Andrews, mm-hmm. and just, you know, conveniently forgot she was married while he was gone. Um, and it is just such... <sighs> the scene where the older couple is talking with her young daughter who's fallen in love with Dana Andrews and says, well, you don't understand what it's like to, you know, to struggle in a relationship and to, to not be loved. And they're like, oh, like I have fallen out of love with your father a million times and we have struggled to find our way back to each other. And it just talked about relationships in this really human way that I just fell in love with and, 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 and loved all of them and all of their struggles. Um, and again, just made me... And it made me look for a lot of um, actors and actresses outside of that. I mean, Dana Andrews and... Um, was it... Uh, it was um, uh, Teresa Wright and Virginia Mayo, Frederick March, um, Myrna Loy. I mean, it was just all these actors and actresses that it was... It was a... It was an impetus to finding them in all of these other different films. You know, when I saw The Thin Man for the first time, I'm like, oh, I know who she is. It was the flashpoint for you. It was. and I remember when I convinced you to show Night of the Demon for mm-hmm. horror movie night, and your realization, Dean Andrews, yeah, you were yeah. really excited yeah. by that fact. Yeah. So it, it started a love for classic film. Um, I think I'd always kind of loved black and white because I was one of those kids that had a black and white TV, so a lot of shit went black and white at my house. Well, remember, color hadn't been invented before then. So, but anyway, um, it really shaped um, the movie lover I became. So, we are on to a next level. We are on to a. My nope, I've got two left each. My second movie. And all of these movies were influential to me in different ways. It's not that uh, Dangerous Liaisons was less influence on me than my number one movie. It may have been more. But these are all just movies that influenced me. So the order they're in just is an order. I'm in no order either, so power to that. So my number two movie is a movie I saw when I was 10 or 11. I was at a friend's house, and it was on HBO Late Night. And it was A Clockwork Orange. Now, the Ooh. first movie I ever saw in my life when I was three when I was three years old was 2001, A Space Odyssey. 
And we saw it in Cinerama, in the Dome, in San Francisco. Oh. In the 60s, there were people laying on the floor in front of the screen because they were so baked on acid. And my, yeah. And I remember the movie. I remember that it was about frogs. It was about space frogs because the helmets that they wore kind of came down to a point and they looked like frogs to me. And I remember that for the entire length of the movie, I didn't speak, move, or sit down. I stood next to my mom's seat and just that movie became, because it was a huge curved screen, and mom said it was miraculous that I was like so well behaved that I would not move or sit down. I was just like, so the second movie that is most influential to me is also a Stanley Kubrick film, and that is A Clockwork Orange. The reason that I liked that movie so much was because I saw it when I was very young and it was a revelation to me that you could have a character who's the main character in the movie is a genuinely horrible human being and yet so incredibly charismatic that you kind of go along with him. Yeah. That was the first time I ever encountered that idea. Um, and there's not a lot of movies like that even now, except maybe Train Spotting. Yeah, and that's uh, what television is all about now. Post yeah. Breaking Bad and oh, just yeah. The Sopranos. Right, but in the '70s it wasn't. Yeah, especially in a town with no ca- with like three channels of TV, and then one of my friends' bought, parents got HBO, so it was completely mind-opening to me in that way. I was like, but I really like this guy, but he is the most horrible character I've ever seen. What's wrong with me? And so I really loved that aspect of it. And it was the first film that I paid attention to art design. Mm. It was the first film that was so genuinely weird looking that it made this deep impression on me. Like when Alex gets out of jail and he goes home to his parents' house and they have that hideous purple mirrored wallpaper everywhere. And it was so strange and surreal that it really struck me as being a magical film even though it was probably it was not good magic right but that uh, and that opened the door to me looking at film completely differently because before I saw Clockwork Orange film was a way to tell us to tell a story after I saw Clockwork Orange film was a way to build a world mm-hmm So that's what I have to say about A Clockwork Orange. (laughs) Also, I read the book so many times over and over again when I was in junior high school that I could open it to any page, read a sentence, and recite the rest of the page. And you did, didn't you? Oh, God, did I. (laughs) I Actually, uh, Clockwork Orange is one of the first movies I had to turn off um, because I found it so upsetting, and I couldn't watch the entirety of it until I had read the book Mm -hmm. because it's somehow easier to read the book and experience it and then visually see it. So, Rice, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Since we're discussing A Clockwork Orange, you're one of the handful of people who may know this. Uh, The Andy Warhol film, uh, I want to say it's called Vinyl or something to that effect. I I don't know. I I have a low Warhol tolerance. So it was a movie Andy Warhol made that uh, the camera was locked down. And so the actors were moving in and out, oh. uh, very much in a uh, theater of the mind style. Actors in quotation marks. Yeah, yeah. Movies. But it was, it was a clockwork orange. They oh, were interesting. doing the story of clockwork orange. 
Oh, I may have to check that out if I can stand more than five minutes of it. I just, all I'm going to say is I'm not 100% sure it's something like vinyl, but... Don't. Don't. I will say that when I took a quarter of Russian in college, it clicked. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, you mean horror show. Mm-hmm. It's excellent in Russian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. That sort of thing. Most of it, you know, it's, it's Russian, Russian and it's um, Cockney rhyming slang. Yep. Yeah. So my next movie is not going to be a surprise to anyone who knows me. You all are rolling your eyes at this point. Um, it's Labyrinth. I saw. Oh, I expected something different. I'm sure you did. Um, I saw it in the theater. And my dad took me to it. I was, like, 17. And at the end of the movie, when the credits were rolling, Dad turned to me and he said, okay, that end scene where she's in her room and all of her childhood friends have come back to life, that's part of the reason I always knock before I come into your room. I'm assuming that's what's going on. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. And then the second part of the conversation with my dad, where he said, so... David Bowie is the Goblin King appears. I'm like, you and mom are gone. I'm sorry. No, I'm not even apologizing. You and mom are gone. I am kidnapping neighbor children. It's a signing bonus. David Bowie as (laughs) the Goblin King offering to be my love slave if I obey him and give him family members. Sold. Right there. Fine. Good. But beyond those particular id reasons, um, Labyrinth is a great look at there is... A magical world beyond that if you just say the right words it will come into your life and that was something that was part of my life anyway from all the folklore and everything I'd read as a child but that was like the perfect encapsulation of it right there if you just say the right words even inadvertently there's going to be huge magical consequences and the puppetry and the effects are all amazing Toby Froud being brought in as baby Toby because his parents were working on on the movie and they were like, we need a baby. Oh, bring, okay, bring us Toby. Apparently he was the only baby who wasn't freaked out by the puppets. Yes. yes. Oh, sure. And yes. apparently Toby had spent a lot of time uh, growing up when babysitter, he would get new babysitters every time his parents would realize that the babysitters were having him sign things and selling his autograph. <laughs> That's awful. I also like to put out, and you married a British man. I married a British man who draws a lot of goblins, so in theory, I married the Goblin King. Um, And in rewatching it recently, I watched, again, the the behind-the-scenes special, and there is, you know, the whole section on the ballroom scene, which is just one of my favorite scenes of a movie ever. And they're talking about, you know, Jennifer Connelly and how well she did, and she, you know did so well as a 14-year-old actress coming into this, and Pete turned to me and he said, that's the age Tiki Box is, our, our goddaughter Tiki Box. And I was like, no, uh-uh, no, no, can't, no. Tiki Box, the same age as when Jennifer Connelly was dancing with David Bowie. I'm out. Yep. Thank you, I'm done. That's, yeah. But that movie is always just Have you so seen the, the behind-the-scenes picture where David Bowie is holding the baby in one hand, and then off camera he's got his arm stretched out with a puppet on it because yes. the baby would kept looking at him. <laughs> yes, because they needed to distract adorable. Toby. Yeah. yeah. I also love the behind-the-scenes photos of Michael Motion, the guy who's actually doing the contact. <gasps> yes, sticking his hands him. up. Or, like, think about how squashed up to David Bowie he is. Lucky man. <laughs> <laughs> 
Calm I, yourself, you, Jilly. You broker. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Fine. Good. Fun bit of trivia: the reason that Michael Motion kind of invented that kind of juggling was because Penn and Teller had a bunch of clear plastic juggling balls and didn't know what to do with them, and they said, yeah. "Here, Michael, see what you can figure out." Uh, he was Penn's juggling partner, and then Penn and nice. Teller was like, "Nah, ma- magic, magic's where it's at." Where it's at. Yeah. yeah. Right, Monty, on to you. Okay, uh, Jim, you picked Flash Gordon earlier. I'm sorry to tell you, you do not have the weirdest movie from 1980, because I'm going to talk about Popeye. (laughs) Wow. Now, Popeye was the cinematic debut of Robin Williams, who at the time was known for Mork and Mindy. Mm -hmm. He would go on to get many Oscar nominations and actual Academy Awards. Popeye (laughs) is a completely baffling nonsense movie made by a pile of cocaine. (laughs) You are not wrong! (laughs) Uh, When I saw it in 1980 in a movie theater, I thought, I like this movie, but I don't understand what's happening. Um, I went on, this was the first movie I actually found out how it was made. I read a book on the making of Popeye that I still have. And it's directed by Robert Altman, who is a genuine genius movie director. Yeah. Uh The script is by Jules Pfeiffer, who is a genuine genius cartoonist in The New Yorker. The music is by Harry Nilsson, who is a (gasps) genuine genius musician. I was unaware of this. The people who made this movie are all very talented. But Harry Nilsson's music is not musical. I'm just going to stop there. I was going to say it's not like like a Broadway musical, but it's not very tuneful. I'm going to punch you. The first time I saw Popeye, there were entire songs I didn't realize were songs. Okay, so you're not talking about Harry Nelson's music in general. No, just just in this particular These are the height of his tossed-off ditties. Okay, then Yeah, he was doing some wacky stuff. Like uh, Skidoo. Have you seen Skidoo? Then I revoke the punching. (laughs) Let's not talk about Skidoo. Let's never mention that here again. There is a song in which Popeye is going up the street singing the song Blow Me Down. But because Robin Williams is mumbling like Jack Mercer did in the Fleischer cartoons, and because the music is very tossed off, you can't even tell it's a song. Because they Maybe were doing it's, it's just kind of a poem yeah. with some music behind it. And I learned as a ten year old, I was like, what happened here? I learned this was because they recorded it all live. They had a little ear thing in Robin Williams' ear. And somewhere else, a pianist just kind of playing it, and he was singing live, just kind of mumbling around like, oh, blow me down. And it does not come across that great until you watch it a billion times, like I have. And then you start noticing all the amazing background characters who are all specific people from the Thimble Theater comic strip. Thimble Theater, before Popeye took it over. Now, yeah. since then, I've gotten into the Popeye comic strip, which is completely crazy and amazing. Yeah, it makes no sense. But Jesus th- Christ, my neighbor's dog. That, That's okay. That they put in Ham Gravy, who was Olive Oil's old boyfriend before Popeye was invented. And he's in the movie for no reason. Uh, so I researched this movie so much that I know everybody in it. That's where I first learned about Bill Irwin, who was an amazing uh, clown. Uh, Paul Dooley, who is wimpy in this. He's also the father in Breaking Away, which is an excellent, excellent movie, if anyone hasn't seen Breaking Away. 
It's a movie about some kids in Indiana who are obsessed with bicycle racing. Oh, yeah, that one. It's like a coming-of-age movie. It's got young Kevin Bacon, and it's really good. Uh, But Popeye, completely crazy, but made by really talented people. So if you pay a lot of... If you, I once talked for an hour defending this movie. There's some really cool things that happen in Popeye. Yeah, there are. The color palette changes during the movie. Right. When Popeye comes to... Go ahead. So that's the thing. Nobody realized this. The, re- the reason this movie was made is because Annie was huge. Remember Annie? Yes. Well, that was made out of a comic strip. What other comic strips can we get and turn into a movie? The answer was this. So Robert Altman decided what he wanted to do was make an origin story. So when Popeye arrives in town, he is not yet a comic strip character, but it's a town of comic strip character people. And... The color palette of all the costumes is all very vivid, except for Popeye. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a little oh. undercut by the fact that Robin Williams has these giant novelty forearms. I was going to say! Yeah. Well, because you have to have those because he's Popeye. Yeah. But that's why... I actually want to rewatch this One now. of the things that people did not like about it, because they didn't get this because it didn't make any sense, Popeye doesn't like spinach in this movie. He is repeatedly offered spinach, and he says, I don't want spinach, I want carrots. Or I, I want lettuce. Until at the end, when Bluto is beating him up, he is forced, uh, his pappy, uh, Poop Deck Pappy, played by, perfectly by Roy Walston, oh my God, throws a crazy. can of spinach at Robin Williams, actually hits him in the head, and cut, you need stitches. Bluto says, so you don't like spinach, huh? And forces spinach into his throat. And then Popeye turns into Super Popeye. And that's, you know, Popeye becoming who he is meant to be. It's his origin story. So if you understand all that, which I eventually did, and watch the movie over and over again, you see so many really clever things. There's a character called the Hermit, who only appears in the backgrounds, but he's in the background of almost every shot. So... And I will also just quickly add... As I stare meaningfully into the distance. The casting of this movie is amazing just for making Shelley Duvall be olive oil because she is perfect as olive oil. She is. Yeah. And if you pull the songs out and listen to the recorded versions, they're very nice and actually have had covers a couple of times. I will say, first of all, holy crap, Dennis Franz was in that movie. Yeah, he's a local tough. Spike, a tough. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the guys that tries to beat up Popeye in Rough House's tavern. They, and you apologize. They're all real sorry. Oh, you want an apology key, huh? And I will say that I still remember Bluto's song <laughs> from that movie. He's mean, he's mean, he's mean. You know what I mean. Exactly. I love Popeye. And at 10, I went into such a deep dive on it. Sorry. <laughs> to understand how this nonsensical piece of cinema could exist. But now I know everything about it, and I love it well out of proportion to its actual quality, but I will defend it. And I have defended it on a podcast called Unjustly Maligned, hosted by Anthony Johnston. <laughs> I think it's a good movie if you know what they're going for, which I'm not sure they did. <laughs> so, obviously, this movie is what kind of led into your like love of deep dive trivia on cinema. And Absolutely, yeah. yes. That was the first making of a movie book I read, and it did not mention any of the cocaine. There was <laughs> well, a bunch of it. And the sets are still up in Malta. You can go to Malta <laughs> and wander around Sweet Haven. 
Oh my god. Wow. In case you like Popeye as much as I do, which I am guessing you do not. (laughs) They were going to make it into an amusement park, but they never did, but it's still just the sex there. You've waxed eloquently on Popeye, which makes me feel really weird about my number two. What is your number two, Jeff? Star Wars, A New Hope. Never heard of it. Tell me about it. What? (laughs) um, Kids today and their weird movies. So, the reason I picked Star Wars was... uh, this is the movie where I was 10 years old in 1977. Oh, yeah. It was made for 10-year-old boys. That was literally the target demographic. <laughs> Finally, something made for 10-year-old boys. <laughs> and I, I, see, I have very vivid memories surrounding Star Wars. The first being, I remember seeing the first commercial. And if you've ever seen any on YouTube or anything, that first commercial... It's a weird-ass commercial that doesn't really give you any sense of the movie. It has this very dire uh, voiceover. And I assumed, when I saw that trailer, that this wasn't a movie that was getting a theatrical release. I assumed it was going to show at the Pacific Science Center. Right. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so I was convinced that I had would have to convince my dad to take me to the Pacific Science Center... So that I could see this Star Wars movie, which at the time might have taken a little cajoling. So the moment I discovered that, no, it was getting a regular theatrical release, I was ecstatic. Because I had been stoked and thought, well, this looked interesting, but I wasn't going to get to see it. So I was literally in the theater opening night in 1977 with my father. There's the movie. It comes up and... Blows my little 10-year-old mind. Uh, so the reason it's on my list is it's the movie where I can really pinpoint mm-hmm. it had a significant effect on my personality development, on what my my pop culture tastes would become, the idea of storytelling. It just, it was that it kind of locked in a lot of my definitive personality traits hard. I'd already been a Star Trek fan. Because growing up, mom loved it, but it was it was the movie that locked me in as a geek forever yep. more. Yeah, I think I was twelve when it came out, and I yeah, same thing. Yeah, so, I had such a weird reaction to it because on the one hand, I loved it; on the other hand, because I had been raised by dad so aggressively in science, classic science fiction, that after we got done watching, I'm like, that was great. That was E.E. E. Doc Smith, the lensman. And Dad was like, that's my girl. Yes, it was. <laughs> Except this one is fun. Oh, oh. <laughs> hey, when you're a nine-year-old so girl, lensman is fun. Gauntlet smacked across. Yeah. Thrown on the ground. But, yeah, no, it just, it, and again, it's the, because, you know, when I was putting this list together, I mean, that was looking at, you know, talking about what made me and looking at this gamut of, well, I'm a, I mean, I do a podcast on geek culture. Clearly, geek is an important part to me. Yeah. And you know, you've got the entire Star Wars trilogy. You've got Indiana Jones. You've got all this. And distilling that down, it's the, you know, what's the point that that all became important? And it's that first Star Wars that was that experience as a 10-year-old boy. Uh, and everything else going forward is all growing out of that from all of those big-budget blockbuster movies. So, yeah. It, it also, interestingly... Because Star Wars is on the list and Blues Brothers is on the list, that means I have two movies starring Carrie Fisher mm-hmm. on my top five. So, 
Uh, and you know, at this point, it's it's not like Popeye where we have to explain it to people. So there's not really much else I can get into. I, you know, Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my movie uh, is kind of in the same vein. Uh, it's called Star Wars. <laughs> Again, you kids today and your weird movies. I don't know what movie Jeff saw in 1977 <laughs> because he's talking about Star Wars A New Hope because that movie was fucking Star, Star Wars. Wars. <laughs> there was no subtitle. There was no episode. That fake crazy bullshit came later. Oh, See, God I felt, okay, I I felt the need to say that. arguing about this. Because we have a lot of young kids who don't, who ain't, don't know that it didn't have that tagline in the beginning. Yeah, there was no episode no. If, on if there. you say, I like the movie Star Wars, people know which one you mean. I, I'm being curmudgeonly. It was Star Wars. It <laughs> he be... decided not to be on this podcast, so we have to have someone be the stunt curmudgeon. <laughs> and it's fine, because then Empire Strike Back was episode five. And it's great, because Star Wars, when they put the episode four thing on there, it made it, made it in media res, even more than the opening of that movie was. The entire uh-huh. series was in media res. And then you got the prequels, which are garbage. But anyway, the Star Wars. I disagree. So do I. I can't but... believe we're actually going to see episode nine. That was like a crazy dream. It it was, and I'm just I don't know. JJ Abrams. I'm just hoping he doesn't completely fuck everything up. Star Wars at was least he, at least he likes Star Wars. Well, at least he does. He's made several Star Wars movies. They were just called Star Trek. Mm-hmm. George um, Lucas likes Star Wars, and people don't seem crazy about all of his movies. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, they brought George Lucas in for Episode Nine. Oh God, why? Um, <laughs> So this close to picking episode one on my next round. Watch what you say. I'll <laughs> get out of my house. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> Star- I saw. So it, Star Wars. I saw it in theater seventeen times. Yeah, much episode. I am one. younger. I I was born the year before it came out, so okay. I did not see it until later. However, I mean I was also much younger than you guys when I saw it for the first time. But again. In the era where there was no VHS, I mostly listened to the NPR serialization of it for oh, his audio drama. That's so good. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a, oh, so, so wonderful. Um, and had lots of extra backstory and everything else in it. But uh, I would listen to that over and over again until finally we got a VCR. And then we borrowed the neighbor's VCR because those were the days when you could... To put two of them in series and copy the VHS tape uh, from one to the next one. Oh, yeah. Because there was really no copy protection in those days. No. At least nothing that a piece of tape couldn't Yep. yep. So we had our own copy of Star Wars at that time. And uh-huh. I, that movie, much like Jeff, I mean, it, it, it informed everything. I'm wearing a wedding ring that has the Rebel Alliance emblem on it. It is such an integral part of my life. And watching... These movies, I've watched them basically all my life. The entire thing, they've been coming out regularly. There's always been content for Star Wars regularly. Yeah. And the, the, the mixture of science fiction with World War II themed space battles with, with your space wizards and magic swords, effectively. And just the, the it's really my introduction to the heroic journey. Yeah. To that entire concept yeah. of that story. Are you ready? I'm ready. That's... 
So, surprising no one, uh, my last two movies are documentaries, and uh, my number four is uh, Grey Gardens, um, the story of Big Edie and Little Edie. Um, they are cousins of uh, Jackie Kennedy, and um, at that $175 a month cabin with my free cable, um, some point at two or three o'clock in the morning, I was not going to sleep and Grey Gardens was on. And I don't know, it's 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 almost a fairy tale story of of a cottage fallen to to dusty garbage filled disrepair of two women almost abandoned by time and their family and uh, and, and what's really sad is I grew up in such abject poverty that their living conditions didn't seem that far away from what I was being raised in, yet they were just a hand's breadth away from the greatest of American affluence mm -hmm. and prestige. Um, and yet, because they were women, they were tossed aside. Um, it, it started an interest in me young of, of the injustices that women face. Um, it, but it, it got me introduced, uh, just introduced into the stories that documentaries can tell, um, that it can just be a slice of life with, you know, a little overflow of to the rest of their life. Um, and they were so not of this time. They were just so strange and unhealthily absorbed into each other's life and in a way that kind of reminded me of of how I was locked in with my mom mm -hmm. um, and it's easy to look at those things when you're looking at it through somebody else um, but it, it started a love for the rest of my life for documentaries Jen's documentary Very corner cool. yeah and uh, I, I went to a wedding in the Hamptons gosh you know uh years and years and years later and I'm walking around and I'm like this looks so familiar and I walk through the main center of the house which doesn't really have much of anything it was just kind of like a pass-through and I see this little piece an article on the wall from a newspaper um and it I'm like oh my god I'm in fucking Grey Gardens and then I wandered away from the wedding what had happened is they had rented Grey Gardens um, which was kind of being used as just a rental property for parties and for summer visits and such um, and they that was where they housed the uh, the groom's family mm -hmm. and so they got to sleep there um, which fuck them because I was there with a member of the groom's family why the fuck was I was I sleeping there <laughs> I have a picture of me and a hammock on the porch and I wandered through, they had these hedges and it had an old um, clay uh, tennis court. And it was just a walk away from the ocean. And it had these little hedges that had a little door that you could walk through and it had a little electrified dollhouse out that had a little a bed in it that you could sleep in or sit in and live in. And it had these flowers and it was just, you know, I saw it after it had been utterly remodeled and brought back to its original splendor. Um, and there was something magical about it, knowing that it had come from such ruin, mm -hmm. um, and loved back into existence. Um, but it just, it created an interest in me to dig for that sort of thing. Uh, and that I don't know what had happened otherwise. 
So off to you, Rias, for your your last of your five movies. All right. Now, the next movie I'm talking about is my number one movie, and that actually is my number one movie in real life. <laughs> I think Jilly might suspect what it is. Oh, I don't know. What this surprises no one. This is a Todd Haynes film called Velvet Goldmine. And when it came out, people absolutely hated it. It was, it was despised by a lot of people because it has a character based on David Bowie, and it has a character based on Iggy Pop, but those characters are not actual David Bowie or actual Iggy Pop. What they are is they are characters that represent the shadows that Bowie and Iggy cast on music and on their lives. And it was a movie that ties that kind of dance, the 70s dandyism traces a direct line back to Oscar Wilde. And I'm a huge Oscar Wilde fan. I have an Oscar Wilde tattoo. Um, and so when the movie started and Oscar Wilde showed up, I'm like, okay, this is a weird movie. Why is this David Bowie movie? It doesn't have any Bowie music in it, which I think is for the better of, of it. Yes. And it's, it's a movie that is a, about something, but it is indirectly about it which is kind of weird to say. There's so many layers of stuff in that movie. It's about sexual freedom and that brief moment in the 70s before AIDS and when gay rights were, when you had at least a window into gay rights and where being bisexual was cool. And it's like, a, it's kind of a snapshot of that time except seen through a filter of extreme glamour because i've seen a lot of pictures of stuff from the 70s and it was like it didn't look like that no except the except for the many many pictures from the 70s that they mimic exactly in the movie right there's a lot of mm -hmm. images that are mimicked in the movie um, there's a scene where the Iggy Pop character is playing guitar and the David Bowie character is playing it with his teeth, which is a super famous image. I remember um, when we saw the documentary about Joe Bryant. Oh, oh, yeah. And there's, there was this guy in the 70s called yeah. Joe Bryant. It's an amazing documentary. One of his album covers is the album cover. Yep. In A Clockwork Orange, when he opens that first, um the first David Bowie quotation marks. <laughs> Brian Slade is the name of the David Bowie character. He opens the first Brian Slade character. The, the fan opens the first album. It's the Joe Bryant album cover art, except it's tweaked a little to make it more beautiful and to give it more meaning. And another through line in that film is the way that the shadows of celebrities are cast into the lives of their fans and how the one of the main characters that we kind of see the story through is Christian Bale. And it's also his story of how he came from a small town and came into London and was in this and became part of this glam rock scene from being a really shy super a really shy gay boy. 
in his town that he wanted it was a secret and like he gets thrown out of the house because his parents catch him masturbating to a Brian Slade album and then he has to go into London and then he meets these people that are in another band um, and are played by placebo that are played yeah. by placebo and then eventually and you get to see Batman have sex with Obi-Wan Kenobi you do yes you do you do yeah that's true well it's, it's a great you know you mentioned Bill it's right. a great cast it's an incredible cast it's Ewan McGregor, it's yes. Jonathan Rhys Meyer, it's um, arguably in his best looking role. Eddie Izzard, who's that, the woman that was in Hereditary? Tony Collette. Tony, Tony Collette. Yeah. Everybody in that movie is great. And I know because I've read a lot, I know a lot about this movie. This is my Popeye. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's a quote. Oh, right. And I've never heard. I'm your Popeye. But, like, there's the famous press conference that uh, that was done in New York, and it was uh, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, and... Um, Lou Reed. And Lou, Lou Reed. Reed, yeah. And there's tons of photos of that thing. But in the movie, when that happens, when that press conference happens, it is done as though it's kind of a circus scene, and everyone is wearing these amazing gold lame outfits, and it's beautiful and romantic. Oh God, the gold sequin top hat! Oh yeah. Just because of this movie, we now root for Sandy Powell to win best costumes. The costumes are by awesome. Sandy Powell, who Don't is we amazing. Always. Um, Sandy Powell also did the costumes in a movie called How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which I am convinced <laughs> takes place on the other side of one on the other side of London. Simultaneously with Velvet Goldmine. <laughs> yeah. Oh. If those idiots had known where to go. <laughs> I know. Yeah, if they had gotten mixed up with space aliens, they'd be over here on this side of the city. But instead, they're over here getting addicted to cocaine. <laughs> that is an awesome AU. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just. I know it is. It, it is my. It's a. Com- from the moment I saw that movie, that was my head cannon. That is. That is beautiful. Um, so I really love that movie. I saw it at a time when my life, I was, a long story, but I was raising a child with my roommate because her boyfriend had left. And so she worked during the day and I took care of the kid and I had fallen into taking care of the kid and almost being a mom. And it had, and I wasn't dressing up as much as I used to. I wasn't doing as much as I had before. And Velvet Goldmine reminded me of who I am. Yeah. And brought me back to, brought me back to myself. And I will never, I will never not be thankful for that. All right. All right. right. And Kurt Wilde. Don't get me started. (laughs) He's my imaginary boyfriend, even though he's canonically gay. I love that you have a giant pillow. Do not tell the listeners about my Kurt Wilde pillow. Anyway, on to Disney. (laughs) It just keeps going. So, for my final movie, and I really waffled about this, because there are are movies from that era of of that time frame that I selected to pick these movies that, you know, there are a lot of them that are very relevant to me. But this is the one that has carried through in a certain level of, of my preferred aesthetic. It is a certain level of just the weird nonsensical way I look at the world. It is something that is referenced on my resume, and that is Beetlejuice. 
the last line on my resume under my freelance experience is Freelance Bio Exorcist since 1987. In job interviews, I have recited the Beetlejuice What Are Your Qualifications monologue. <laughs> and, it, well, it's a, it's a great trick question on, an, on a resume because either they didn't catch it, they didn't read all the way through the bottom of my resume, or they get the joke. And, and you know, There's people... There's nowhere get, in between. Yeah. yeah. But I first saw it when it came out because, you know, I'd seen a trailer for it and it looked interesting. But a friend of mine went and saw it before me and he came back and he said, why... This movie came out of your head. This is really weird. And so I went and saw it, and I was like, oh my god, you're right. This did come out of my head. Because just the weird black and white pop culture, stripey sort of pop art thing to it. The handbook for the recently deceased. The the little gothy girl who want, who's taking photos and and wants to talk to the dead people because she, she just does not... Get along with, with her, the living people. With the living people, with her stepmom. With mm-hmm. it's, she herself is strange and unusual. She herself is strange, strange and, and unusual. unusual. Oh my god, you people really are dead. Mm-hmm. Your mother's going to throw a fit when she sees you cut holes in her $300 sheets. This is a movie that Pete refuses to be in the room when I watch anymore. Because you've watched it so much. Well, I've watched it so much, and it is one of those movies that I'm a terrible person to watch it with because I do recite the lines. And I don't recite them like the split second before, but I can pretty much, once the movie starts, recite the entire thing by heart. You know what happened to me? I suddenly discovered that I could do that with heavy metal. Wow. That's weird. <laughs> That's weird. But no, I get it. But so there was a there was a tweet recently about, you know, retweet this with what are what is the something of that is so on brand for you that people immediately text you or tweet you about it. And Beetlejuice is it. As soon as like even the rumor of the Beetlejuice musical started, <laughs> everyone was like, Jilly, do you know about this? Hot Topic has aligned Beetlejuice merchandise. Did you know? And I'm like, yes, I, I have a Google alert. I, I get the notifications for this instantaneously. <laughs> but thank you for thinking of me. <laughs> so when when my eldest goddaughter, Tiki, first saw Beetlejuice, she promptly turned to her parents and she's like, oh, it's Auntie Jilly's head. So... There we go. That's that's one of the movies that made me. Because I have been a freelance bioexorcist since 1980. Yeah, my only Google alert is still just Christopher Walken, and I've had it since I think 2001. <laughs> I get notifications about what he's up to. That's awesome. And does Stalker. the Exorcist keep getting funnier, yes. funnier every time you see it? It does. Five hundred sixty-seven times. Yeah. Monty, I am so excited to hear what your final movie is, because I have been surprised with everything you've said. I feel like this one won't surprise you. It feels pretty on brand for me. <laughs> but that's me saying, you know, that's from this side. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Aww. Oh my god, I love that movie. <laughs> it's a movie I love so much. You have just inherited my Buckaroo Banzai coat. I did, and I'm going to wear it proudly. Because it's a movie... That knows what it is, and it doesn't care if the audience doesn't get on board. It just makes huge, strong choices over and over and over again. Whether they're good or not. Yeah, it makes me a little sad that there are fewer movies like that. Because because they're only, like, huge or tiny little independent now. Um, There was a newspaper review that was... I remember it being quoted on the ad in the paper... That said, the very strangest good movie to come along in a long time. And I think oh, that's yeah. so accurate. It's such a weird movie. It has a really good cast. Yeah. It's People love Jeff Goldblum now. 
It's a wall building. Yeah, first time I ever saw Clancy Brown in a movie. It's very much a world building movie. Speaking of world building, one of the things I love about this movie is the novelization, which is the best movie novelization ever written, and I've read a lot of them. Um, One of the things the novel does is pretends that it is the hundredth book in the series. Oh! So it's oh. full of footnotes of saying things like, like, there's this character named Reno. He's in the movie. Mm-hmm. And his girlfriend is Pecos. She's not in the movie. She's in Tibet. She's mentioned briefly. Um, there's a footnote that says, Reno confessed his undying love for to Pecos while they were stitched inside of a yak skin at the behest of the nefarious... Uh, Hanoi Zan. Read more about their adventures in the story Bastardy Proved a Spur. None of that happened. None of that story exists. It's full of footnotes and references to other adventures that Buckaroo Banzai has been on. where Where the Hong Kong Cavaliers came from. Half of the novelization is not in the movie. It's like, why are they called the Hong Kong Cavaliers? What is their training program? Do you have to be in the band? Why is there a watermelon there? That's actually to... um, They're trying to figure out a way to drop food from airplanes to famine-struck nations. So this is a watermelon in a vice. So to see if they can make a watermelon that will survive impact from being dropped out of a plane. (laughs) Is Is that in the novelization? Yes. Yes? The novelization. Seriously. Half of it is not in the movie. It's and it is really fun. A, W.D. Richter wrote the movie and... Earl McRouch. Earl McRouch, yeah. you're right. Um, Why for, was I thinking W.D. Richter? <laughs> he directed it. He directed the D- movie. For Off the, the movie, internet, the novelization <laughs> is a legitimately brilliant science fiction novel. Yeah. And I love the movie and I love the novelization. And they're both so weird. Yeah. They are weird. There's weird things. There's John Big Boutet. Yeah. The, just the basic principle of a neurosurgeon rock star samurai scientist. A couple other things. And you either say, I'm on board with this movie, mm-hmm. or you say, I don't know what's going on. And I love that a movie is willing to say, well, some people are not going to get this, but we're charging straight forward. Enthusiastic, right. and they used some of the ideas from the from a script for a sequel in Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, because Hanoi Shan is Lo uh, is Lo Pan. He was supposed to be a character in the Buckaroo Banzai universe, but they ended up being in this other universe, which is very close. And it's one of those movies where if you like Buckaroo Banzai, I can tell you're my people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things I've noticed. Is is I think. I think a lot of these movies that we've mentioned have been like handshakes to to yeah. people of finding out. I think all of us are people who've kind of sought out our people and our family outside of of our blood family, and this has mm-hmm. been part of what leads those groups together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have anything else to say about Buckaroo Banzai? Uh, lots, but you w- probably don't want to hear all of it, so I'm happy to cede my time. All right, <laughs> Jeff. Well, you know, it's, uh, just one, you know, because I, again, we're similar age, uh, same, much the same experience. I read the novel too. Uh, yeah, the only thing, the only issue I have with Buck Rubanzai, and that's a modern era issue, is 
wouldn't have been nice if the actor playing him had actually been mixed race. Yeah, Peter Weller is not as Japanese as the character is supposed to be, and that is a shame. Yeah. On the other hand, I'm glad they didn't yellow face it, so we'll... Yeah. And again, well, here's the other thing, because to, to finish up before we get to my movie, Bakaru Banzai led me directly to Doc Savage. Sure. It's, <laughs> it's based directly on Doc Savage, except so. that the Doc Savage movie is terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So my final movie. So again, I'm going uh, much like Rice. I, I'm going with my final movie to my favorite movie. Uh, but there's a lot of reasons why it's my favorite movie, and that is Casablanca. Oh my god, we were just talking about So, uh, and so there's a lot of things that go on with me in Casablanca. And uh, I discovered, you know, I'm, I can't even remember 100% how I discovered it. I discovered it as a teenager. Um, and it was a movie that when I first watched it, it was like, well, that was interesting, but grew through subsequent watchings uh, as I dealt more and more into it because there's so much going on. And it ended up becoming much like um, Jill's story earlier. It became a uh, traditional movie for me uh, when I would celebrate the winter solstice. Because I, I was big, you know, I celebrate the solstice separate from Christmas. And so I would do, uh, you know, I do this whole thing. There's traditions about things to set your year uh, up that you do and you light up. You light a fire, and I had a fireplace. I'd do all this stuff, and then I, after I was done with this thing, that would take me about half an hour. I'd cook myself dinner, and then I'd put on Casablanca. So there was a there was a period where I would not return to the real world for quite a while, uh, and instead I'd get immersed more into this world. And every time I've watched Casablanca, there has been new things. Mm-hmm. And so, for me. I think part of what gets me with Casablanca is, at its heart, it is a story of redemption. Multiple characters in this movie go through redemption arcs, and I've discovered, through my tastes, I am a sucker for a good redemption arc. A character who's not doing something so great, and then has an epiphany, and... (laughs) finds a way to redeem themselves. And and it's not just Rick, even though he's the biggest redemption arc in the whole movie. You've got Louis. Uh, you've got uh, the uh, the German girl who's uh, the bartender Sasha keeps flirting with, who ends up dating a German, but then rediscover... Or, no, she's French. She's not German. She's a French girl. Oh, I can't believe I forgot that. Um that does make a difference in the it does because it's the Marcia's scene and then there's the Marcia's scene itself and there was for years I remember it had an emotional impact Uh, I remember I was watching it once I I mentioned earlier I used to live with Rias' best friend it was actually a group house several of us lived there and one night I just popped it in because periodically that's what I did and the first time I popped yeah first time I popped it in while I was living with these guys and we're watching it and one of the roommates, a uh, friend of all of us named Wade, asked me to stop the movie after the Marciaz scene and rewind. Because he wanted to watch it again. And it's the later learning that most of the background actors in that were refugees. Okay. And had people who had uh, been escaping the regime in Germany, which was still going on at that time and so it was it was just this 
you know, overwhelming thing. And so now when I, you know, there's a part of me that when I'm looking at film, I'm thinking about all these things that happened and how that movie came together. And it just, it's, it's that one that gets really on an emotional, yeah. visceral level yeah. for me. I can always watch it. When they started making Casablanca, I don't think the U.S. was even in World War II yet. No, they weren't. No, they weren't. No, it was. It was. It was in nineteen. Movie came out forty-two. Forty-two, right? Uh -huh. So yeah, we are prior to the entrance in the war, and yet there's somebody in Hollywood. In fact, it was a little bit controversial. It was because we weren't sure if we wanted to depict the Nazis as bad guys yet. Ooh. Yeah. Hey, we were young. We were a young, feckless country. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that is, uh, so that's my number one movie for this list and in of all time. I don't think I'd ever known that you loved that movie that, that much. That is such a great ever, movie. I don't think it had ever come a conversation with us. Oh, I love Peter Laurie in that movie. I like that oh, he, does, he does not get a redemption. He just dies right quick well, like he should. Oh. I mean, I mean there's, he's okay. clearly making women have sex with him in order to get papers to get out of the country. Louis well, doing the same thing. Louis doing the same thing, yeah. Yeah, it's, this, yeah. It's, but he's well, not Peter Lorre. You know what? This is a movie, again, I've seen enough times. There, there are little <laughs> tiny arcs throughout the movie. and little. You, much like you talk about Popeye has all those thimble theater characters in the background. So Casablanca has all these characters where I'm sure somebody, if they were wanting to go there, could write little short stories about all of the characters yeah. in Rick's. The couple that are trying to learn English saying, what watch? Mm-hmm. They don't know it's supposed to be what time is it? Yeah. Um, there's an amazing short story by Kim Newman that is about Rick yep. while he was in Paris before, after she left and before he went to Casablanca. And he's working for the Nazis and they are hiring him to hunt down the famous literary characters of Paris because he because they know that that's where the true heart of Paris, of mm -hmm. Paris is. Mm -hmm. So he's like in the sewers looking for the Phantom of the Opera. And mm -hmm. Oh, oh, I think it's I have that in It's such a good yeah. story. Did you it's... know that Jack Benny is allegedly in that movie? <laughs> it's true. He's supposed to be a French waiter. Oh, but... surprised me. <laughs> There's, okay. It's never been proven. It's an yeah. unproven story. Anyway, so that's it. I, I, what else can you say? All right. So... My number one movie, movie that I can quote just about all the dialogue from, it is the first movie where I openly wept in a theater. The year is 1986. Young, 10-year-old Jim has sat down to watch a movie that he has been very excited for, and he, about a third of the movie, through the way through the movie, he watches... A hero that he has been idolizing for two years die. I am talking, of course, of Transformers the movie. That oh. movie is That oh, is. Honey, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I watched childhood friends die in yeah. the first third of that film. Yeah, I saw the, the bot. The, yes, the oh, corpses okay. of Wheeljack, of Wind Charger. And of course, Optimus Prime, but all of these Autobot heroes yeah. that were being murdered that on you screen. Knew because you saw them in your house every weekend. They were your cartoon heroes. They were my toys that were sitting there. And all of a sudden, the Decepticons attack a shuttle. And the Autobots say, oh, we've got to fight them off. And they turn around, and the Decepticons murder them 
on screen. This the, 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 these characters like this is a, ch- a kids cartoon. Yeah, and they made the movie version of it and killed characters. Yeah. Just like these characters that have been around for, for these on these episodes for two years, on screen murdered them, like shot them full of holes. Ironhide has been blasted off of his feet, grabs a hold of Megatron's leg, Megatron shoots him in the head. That movie, yes, formed so much out of out of my life that for that. It also, up until that point in my life, I'd also been listening to a lot of Weird Al Yankovic. Um and a lot of, because my parents listened to a lot of 50s and 60s rock because that was their mm-hmm. formative era. I've been listening mostly to that. This movie got me into hard rock yeah. and heavy metal. Oh, because yeah. Because yeah. the soundtrack was surprisingly, like, oh, yeah. crunchy guitar heavy. Now uh, that I know you're talking about the animated one, I'm down with it. Yeah. I thought you meant, like... Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, that's why I was talking okay. about, you know, 1986. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know amusingly, side note about trans- trivia... After that, they made the G.I. Joe cartoon movie out of the uh, from the uh, animated series on that. They originally, in that movie, uh, killed off Duke, the hero, the leader of G.I. Joe. They retconned that. They made it very clumsy dub in the in the movie where they say he's gone into a coma after he's been stabbed through the chest by a spear, and he very plainly has his heroic speech and dies. Oh, he's gone into a coma, says a guy off screen. And then at the very end of the movie, there is another piece of off screen voiceover. Oh, we've defeated Cobra. And they just said Duke woke up out of his coma. He's going to be okay. (laughs) And the reason why they made that retcon is because the death of Optimus Prime went over like a friggin' lead balloon. But, But it's what people remember. It is. But kids were legit traumatized because yeah. these, they killed all these characters. I can and as that. Peter Cullen, the voice actor, said, we didn't think it was a big deal in the recording booth and everything because all we were doing was wiping out last year's toy line and reintroducing next year's toy line because uh-huh. it was all just a big commercial. But because kids had grown so attached to those characters and then they murdered them, they had a huge letter write-in campaign that resulted in, A, the change to the G.I. Joe movie, where they weren't going to traumatize kids by murdering another one of their heroes, and also that they brought Optimus Prime back in the animated series that followed the, the movie. Yeah. They, they resurrected him. So, I can quote everything out of that movie. It uh, just completely formative for my life. So there's two things. Again, I had emotional reactions to the Transformers movie. I recently rewatched part of it mm-hmm. uh, because this other thing I'm watching, somebody's using the song "The Touch," mm-hmm. uh, and so it got me watching that scene. And I didn't, and I forgot how kind of powerful in that movie uh, the scene with that song is mm-hmm. when Hot Rod accesses the Matrix, and you hear for the theoretically the last time Optimus Prime's voice. Mm-hmm. Passing the torch on to his heir apparent by saying, "Arise, Rodimus, Rodimus Prime." Yeah, and that was—I remember feeling that's a very effective scene because it's the the new hero yes. getting his taking his mantle. Uh, the other is we just recently had uh, when we're recording this. It was just recently Prime Day, mm-hmm. which is which is Amazon's big. Let's try and have Black Friday in the summer, mm-hmm. and the meme going around is. Oh, Prime Day has become so commercialized, but remember, he didn't die so you could have savings, and they show the picture of Optimus Prime yeah. on the table passing away. Yes. So. 
who who went from full color to black and white yeah. when he died. Lost ble- apparently when a transformer dies, or at least a very important one, it bleaches all the color out of it. I love that decision. Like, That's I'm, amazing. I'm yeah. picturing the meeting where someone says, "This is a really sad scene." I bet I can make it worse. Watch <laughs> this, guys. And then everyone says, yeah, let's do that. Let's traumatize some kids. Yep. All right. But again, they didn't think they were going to... They, they were not realizing how attached yeah. kids had become. I think that movie is good enough that there were people. Maybe not Colin, <laughs> but if it's that good, somebody cared while they were making it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unlike, yeah. let's say, the G.I. Joe movie, which I have never heard anyone say was formative for them. The the only thing that's good about the G.I. Joe movie is, other than the hilarity of that part, is the opening sequence and the cover version that they do of the G.I. Joe theme song is Chef's Kiss. Okay. It's amazing. Jen, your movie. All right. Take us home. So, um, I am going i think a different route than everyone else um because a lot of these are like formative movies that started like our loves of genre or from a long time ago mine's my last one is really really recent and i'm not holding it up as a movie it's one of my i i really enjoy it um but it's not like a favorite movie of all time but it is a movie because it formed decisions i made in my life it is um 51 um burst street it is a documentary from um gosh 2006 and so basically, um, you have a guy, his mom dies, it's a documentary, his mom dies, um, his dad remarries uh, his former secretary within, I think, either 60 or 90 days of his mom's passing. They had been married for 54 years. And as he's going through things, he finds his mom kept a handwritten and sometimes typed journal almost every day of her life. And the thing is, is when you find something like this, what do you do with it? So he read through all of it. And uh, his mom, I think, died back in early early 2000s. Um, so she was, you know, I mean, married probably in the late 50s. Um, and she was really unhappy. And, and he remembers, you know, a lot of people like disliking her. And he's got, he, he was one of those kids that always videotaped everything. So he has all this footage of his parents and his mom, you know, I remember seeing uh, reviews and stuff of the movie, the documentary after the fact, they're like, what a fucking bitch. Oh, I fucking hated her. And of course he went off and married someone else. But the thing is, it's like when his dad remarried, he became a different man. He had been a very um, unloving, very grumpy, very removed father. And all of a sudden he became loving and became expressive in a way he had never been in his very long lived marriage with his wife. And as his wife is discussing, she was trapped. She was trapped by um, the expectations of what wives and mothers, and in all honesty, hadn't really wanted to get married got involved, um, her and her husband kind of got involved with like a swingers group in the 70s. And it almost let her broach out and explore things that weren't this narrow, tiny view. And so about the time that I read this, because I I watched it a couple of times, like a a bit after it had come out. And I had been in a marriage that started well and declined really quickly. Um, I did like six years of intensive therapy, um, couples counseling, trying to make things work. Um, and 
there was a lot of times where I was seen as very angry and very bitter um, and kind of mean sometimes. And all of a sudden I saw this picture of a woman of what my life could be in 54 years. Um, and that I literally had a crossroads in front of me of I could keep going on the path I'm on and be really angry and feel angry at the at the end of my life for the things that were taken away from me or I could understand because the thing is there's this beautiful point in the documentary where he's reading her her diary where she first meets Kitty the man her, her husband ends up marrying and she says Kitty is the kind of woman he should have married because she isn't difficult and she's sweet and and I think they would have been very happy. And there's so often that women are taught we have to make things easier for men or have to make ourselves less. We have to not be difficult. Yes. Um, I shared a, an article recently about this woman who, uh, she had a girlfriend whose boyfriend was nagging her all the time. And... There's so much that women are taught to either, like, well, just be the better person and ignore someone being really shitty and negative and commenting on everything you do as though they should have a right to express their opinion on it. And, you know, basically this documentary allowed me to view my anger in a productive way to where I didn't have to be angry anymore and where I could choose things that made me happier even though I was going to hurt and upset someone that didn't want me to change to do so. That your to, happiness was just as valuable yes. as the and person I, you were caretaking. Because at the end of it, we could both be really unhappy. Or I could change it now and be happier and give them the opportunity to find something that suited them more. Mm -hmm. And I don't honestly think... There's a lot of work I did on my own to get to that, that, that crossroads. But I think without the view of, of what could be, I mean, Jesus Christ, it was like the fucking ghosts showed up in my dream. I, I remember showed you me, telling me about it. I remember you talking to me about it. it about I just, I watched this and here's everything that it's making me feel. And I'm really uncomfortable about this and I don't know what to do. But then I did. And, and and this documentary very much made me who I am. And I'm pretty goddamn thankful for it. Yeah. So are we. Yes. Yeah. We like who you are. <laughs> so I had this great idea because part of what... Um, I can't remember if you suggested it or if I suggested it for the five movies that made us. But anyway, part of what inspired this was Movie Crush. And... He asks people in their interviews, he's like, what's your favorite movie? And it's a hard, it's a hard thing to decide because when you're telling people, like all the people out there, when you're telling them what your favorite movie is, man. You're making yourself vulnerable. It is. And it's super. Because a lot of times I won't tell people that Velvet Goldmine is my favorite movie mm -hmm. because I know so many people yeah. hate that movie and I don't want them to think. My favorite Less movie wasn't me. actually on my list because it came after yeah. 
the, the period you I was decided to take a very specific yeah on some days hackers is my favorite movie but i say his girl friday <laughs> <laughs> so i'm gonna wrap up how movie crush wraps up and i'm gonna go around it's gonna be a um, little bit quicker there's than another movie i kind of want to talk about well then you should do that and it's a movie when you were talking about how the kind of movies you like are handshake um so many people that i know that are friends and are in my social group in high school were outcasts and weirdos who discovered the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. 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 was a place where you went to meet other outcasts and weirdos. And I have friendships from the Rocky Horror Picture Show back in the 80s when I was in high school that are still strong that I would never have had without that. And although I know it's like not a top five life experience movie list, I just think that when we're talking about stuff like this... That experience that it is, you who you are. That, yeah. that is an experience that molded so many of us that I feel weird leaving it out. Yeah. I um, love that you have a top six because I almost did, and yeah. now one of us did. So it's I'm okay not with actually that. on any of my lists. I haven't written it down anywhere. It's oh, but just you know something it is. that. But it's such it's a so formative. Important. It is right. Like when I said that I realized I can recite heavy metal, it's because we had Rocky Horror Picture Show on Saturday nights, and heavy metal was the Friday, Friday night, night movie mm. for the midnight <laughs> movies, and oh, I didn't know I could recite it until it was playing in the background, and I found myself reciting Talking it, and I was like, oh my god. Oh god, I can Why probably can't recite I remember most of my the phone wall. number. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I have two guys coming over to my house tomorrow mm -hmm. that I met, uh, they are two of my oldest friends, we met as teenagers, at the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yep. It's and it's. They are still an integral part of my life. Yeah. yeah. All right. So I'm okay. Gonna, I'm gonna stop the movie talk. Except it's new movie talk. So we're gonna do five movie questions. So the first one is, what was your first movie in the theater? I already answered that. It was 2001: A Space Odyssey. Jill. If we count theater as a drive-in theater, doesn't matter. Fritz the Cat. Yeah. Monty. Uh, no idea. Good chance it was Star Wars, so I'm going to say that. All right, Jeff. I, it was a Bruce Lee movie at a drive-in. I want to say it was Big Boss. Because uh, having seen them later, that's the one that most closely matches those memories. Yeah. Jim? Uh, mine was a double feature of Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. Um Mine, uh, not for my own enjoyment, up in smoke, but for my own enjoyment, it was the Muppet movie. So, the next question is, do you remember the first R-rated movie you saw? Also 2001? There you go! <laughs> Objections! <laughs> also, also Fritz the Cat! <laughs> I have no idea. We okay. were watching... I watched R-rated movies way too early. Yeah, yeah. We all did. He had a mom who was like totally cool with me watching whatever. He yeah, I can't remember if Big Boss was R-rated at the time or not. <laughs> uh, honestly, I I have no idea. Okay. I, I I can't lock it down in my head. I know this one. One year after Transformers the movie, after I read the novelization, I convinced my parents to let me go see RoboCop. Which is really, really fun. Yeah, good time. I, I because... had read the novel, I came out of that, and I turned to my father and I said, eh, the book was worse. As far as the violence and the yeah. you know, stuff like that. Yep. That stuff went into the director's cut. But yes. the, yeah. yeah, Starring Peter Weller. Starring Peter Weller. Yeah. Yeah, what is really funny is uh, that is pretty much my first R-rated movie in the theater because I went with my dad and stepmom one of the times I went down to Minneapolis. And I don't know why, but... That was what we saw. Okay, the next question is, um, 
what is a movie that you think would surprise others that you love uh, that, that doesn't seem kind of like on brand on brand for, right. for Rias and if anybody needs to pass and be come back um, to you I've got I've got it um, that movie is Female Trouble John Waters a lot of my movie tastes are pretty oh, highfalutin highfalutin <laughs> I like highfalutin except for Faster Pussycat Kill Kill but um, yeah Female Trouble by John Waters is almost a comfort movie for me I, I love it so much. And, right. uh, yeah. That's it. Mine is going to be completely baffling to everyone who knows me. Ocean's Eleven with George Clooney. I love that movie. That, I that am movie shocked to that the, you do. My, my, one of my best friends, Cass, and I have an entire shorthand based around that movie. Oh, that's adorable. It makes me love you more. <laughs> and I didn't think that was possible. We just watched uh, Ocean's 8 the other night. I need to watch that. Yeah, really good. It's a lot of fun. All right, Monty. Um, I don't know what people think of my movie taste, so I'm going to go with uh, Grease 2. There, I have heard a uh, large contingent of people who feel strongly that Grease 2 is a better movie than Grease 1. I it's, don't know how I feel about it's that. Not, it is not. It has a better message than Grease 1, certainly, but Grease is an excellent movie and Grease 2 yes. is garbage. But <laughs> I spent an entire year in a house where we had two VHS tapes to watch. One was Zappa's Universe, a uh, badly produced tribute concert for Frank Zappa Yeah, that the Zappa family has dis disavowed even though Dweezil ran it. The other one had three movies on it. Days and Confused, Reality Bites, and Grease 2. So I've seen all three of those wow. a hundred times. But people like Days and Confused. I love Days and Confused. I loved Days and Confused. Mm, and what was, what was the second movie he did? I just did not like that. Uh, anyway, don't know. I, I don't know. School of Rock? You know, I, I don't think anyone in this room would necessarily be surprised, but I think people who know me outside of here and hear me talk about, you know, my movie critiques would be very surprised to find out how much I love Hudson Hawk. <laughs> how would the yeah, I was fucking gonna, love Hudson Hawk? I thought about always heard for Hudson Hawk. Yeah. In, my, in our group, Hudson Hawk is universally beloved. And yeah. you have to remind yourself, other people hate this thing. Right, yeah, and that's right. what I'm thinking. Because they're dumb. Because, again, this is a I movie... I mean, I throw that out there often, but I'm sorry. If you don't like Hudson Hawk... My theory is that Die Hard came out, and people were like, Bruce Willis is an action star. And uh -huh. they weren't expecting comedy Bruce from Moonlighting, but it's a comedy movie, and they understand so that. It's also something of a parody-slash-deconstruction of the action genre yeah, of that I don't think people were ready for at that yeah. time. Yeah, right. But if you can't enjoy Richard E. Grant and Sandra Bernhardt, and Richard E. Grant hates that movie. Richard E. Grant loves that movie. But oh, I can't believe it. I mean, oh. it's a movie. I mean, here's what I remember about it. Again, I'd seen it in the theater, loved it. But then, Rias, this is another of the Rias and I movies. I don't know that summer how many times. We actually had a thing. What do you want to oh. watch? Well, there's always Hudson Hawk. There's always oh. room for Hudson, Hudson Hawk. Hawk. Yeah. Was a motto that we used regularly when we couldn't think of something to watch. All right. So, Jim? Uh, I am gonna go with uh, West Side Story. <gasps> no, all right. It's a, it's a very good movie. You it know, is. It's, it's a great a, musical. It's a great musical. Right. It's uh, I watched it a lot because it's one of my mother's favorites, and uh, the dancing is great. Uh, the music is all great. The, oh yeah, got yeah. All Incredible of these incredible cinematography. Yeah, no, it's a it's a wonderful movie, and uh, I have nice memories of it. it. You know, and of course, you know. It's, it's, 
<laughs> so, an Officer Krupke and just, yeah, just oh, Officer Krupke great movie. Is the best. So, um, with me and my, speaking about hoity-toity, <laughs> I don't typically like a lot of comedy. I especially don't like a lot of kind of lowbrow comedy, but I fucking love The Ladies' Man. I don't know why it just charms me my two like really stupid movies that I really love is I love The Ladies Man and I love Joe Dirt Hmm. I did you watch the sequel to Joe Dirt it was made it is a crackle original I was terribly (laughs) I was terribly afraid it would not have the charm that the first one does for me is Christopher Walken in the second one I don't know I know well then I don't care it was made It was made 10 years later for Sony's free movie streaming service. So, so you know it's good. Whatever wow. amount of love they put on the first Joe Dirt, they did not on the second. Okay. Ooh, okay. So my next question is, will you walk out of a movie at the theater? I have only ever walked out of one movie in a theater. That is the second part of this question. Are you willing to share what that was? Yes, it was Picnic at Hanging Rock. Wow. Okay, first off... <laughs> There's a thing called Secret Fest. Oh, oh. And Secret Fest is a thing where you get a ticket to it and you go to the theater and if you want to get in, because it sells out real fast, you wait in the front of the line. So my friend and I are sitting in this line on a rainy day in Seattle for three hours waiting to get in. Now, previously at Secret Fest, one of the secret movies was an unreleased version of Pulp Fiction. Wow. So sometimes there is amazing stuff. And then so sometimes you get it. We got in there, we got up to the balcony and because we're both short, so we like to sit in the front row of the balcony. We get into the most uncomfortable theater chairs known to God or men. And they come out and announce Today's movie is really special to us. It is a brand new pristine print of a Peter Weir film and I'm like, oh, Oh, please be a good Peter Weir film. <laughs> They're like, it's called Picnic at Hanging Rock. And I was like, okay. And after sitting on concrete for multiple hours and then sitting in an uncomfortable chair and then being shown a film that I have seen before and that I didn't really like and yeah. a film in which nothing ever happens. Nothing happens. incredibly slow. I will slow. completely give you that. I, yeah, I walked out of I mean, that I movie. love that movie, but it is it it's is a slow-moving It, it is a wallpaper now. movie and... Yeah, I just could not take it. All right, Jill? I have never walked out of a movie, but I came so close when I went to the sneak preview screening of The Neon Demon. Because, oh my God, I know that movie made a bunch of people's top ten lists for that year. Not too big. It's very... There are parts of it that are really, really visually stunning. That's what I'm There are other parts that aren't. It has no plot. It's really dumb. It is one of those movies best experienced on, playing on the wall of a goth club while you are wandering around try, waiting in line to buy drinks. You know what's funny? I was supposed to see that with you that night, and I was not feeling well, so I... You dodged a bullet. I, I begged off it, and she later said, it's, you were the smart one. Yeah. Okay, let's go on to Monty. Um, Will you walk out of a film? I have walked out of at least two films that I can think of. Are you willing to share what it was? Yes. One, I was a small child... And it was I was in Michigan for a family Christmas, and we went to see a Disney movie called Amy, and it was the most saccharine garbage I had ever seen. And there was a moment where 
the big, good-natured, a little dumb, deaf kid was out picking flowers, and he was on train tracks. And oh, I said, no. if a train hits that kid, I'm just leaving. And I think I was only like 9 or 10, but a train did hit that kid, and I did leave. More recently, I walked out of Kick-Ass. You did, and you left me in the theater for the re- for most of the movie. Um, the first one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I just... Something about their... Co- most of Kick-Ass treats violence seriously. Like, that's kind of the gimmick. What if a normal person tried to be a superhero and got beat up? But they beat him up so much, I really found it unpleasant. And then when they started blowing people up in a walk-in microwave, I was like... <sighs> yeah. I, I really felt unhappy watching that movie. Yeah. So I was watching it with Rias, and I said... Is it okay if I leave? <laughs> and Rye stayed to watch the movie, and I sat outside the theater until she came out. All right, Jeff, will you leave, walk out of a movie? Uh, I've never fully walked out of a movie before. Thank uh, you. <laughs> but I have uh, spent more time in the out-of-the-theater section. Uh-huh. Uh, like in the lobby yeah. or checking on things because the movie wasn't engaging me. Oh. The one I, I can definitely remember where I, I, I just, I, I almost... Found better, de- better things to better do Better things to do was a movie called <laughs> Cyborg that I went and saw. <laughs> it starred Jean-Claude oh, Van Damme, God. and it was just god-awful. Okay. Uh, you're going to explode. But the, the first movie I ever considered it, I thought... that The first time I can cognitively remember watching a movie in the theater and thinking, this is... This is but why am I staying here? Was Superman four? Mm, the quest for peace. Yeah, it was not a good piece of cinema. And this was the the only other time that it happened was in a drive-in that my dad had driven me to the movie to see Megaforce. So, but uh, no, Cyborg was pretty much the closest to actually leaving the theater. Uh, if being bored and wandering out to the lobby counts, when I was twelve, I found E.T. the Extraterrestrial so. God awful boring. I asked my mother for a quarter so I could go out into the lobby and play Ms. Pac-Man. My friend Pleiades walked out of E.T. out of I mean she was like maybe nine because she she, oh no she stood up and said I refuse to be emotionally manipulated and walked out. (gasps) Wow that is very Pleiades. It is very Pleiades. All right uh Jim? I have. I've only ever done it once. And that movie was Napoleon Dynamite. Oh yes. High five. That movie is it is gross. It, it is, is garbage. It's it is bad. I mean, we watched, bad. We we were sitting there. We were actually the whole department that I was in played hooky from work to go watch it, and we sat down and we started watching it. And there was a Harold and Kumar go to White Castle trailer, and that was the best part of any of that experience. <laughs> and we watched. We started wow. watching that movie, and I turned to my friend that I was sitting next to, and I looked at her, and I and I looked at her, and I looked around, and I said, "Why are people laughing?" And she looked at me and she said, "I don't know." And we, we got up and we left. We were like, we're, yep. we're done. We got up, we walked out. Now, as we walked out, one funny thing happened on the screen. And we went, I went, ha, that was pretty funny. And then I kept walking. Yeah. <laughs> because I knew the rest of the movie was not going to be any nope. good. And I've seen parts of the rest of the movie since. You've, and I was right. You've seen this little dance. That's the highlight I've seen of the, the movie. Dance. You're done. That's good. <laughs> I saw the dance. So mine's going to be kind of short and sweet because I'm going to expand upon it in the next question. I'm going to say, yes, I absolutely will walk out of movies. So my very last question is, what is your movie-going ritual? Do you have a 
a thing that you like to get when you go to the movies? Do you have a place that you like to sit in the theater? What do you like when you go to see a movie in the theater? I don't have a movie-going ritual. You just like to go and you sit where there's space and you enjoy mm-hmm. your movie? Yeah. Okay. I watch a movie. Jillian, what is your movie-going ritual? The closest I actually have to a movie-going ritual is you telling me, we're going to the movies, I have bought tickets, because I actually go out to the movies so rarely there are only specific movies I care about seeing in the theater, that most of the time I'm like, yeah, whatever, we're going. But if you are like, no, we are going to the movies, we are going to this movie, this is the time I'm picking you up. I have purchased the tickets and picked the seats. There's my ritual, okay. All right, Monty? Uh, No real ritual. I mean, I'll get popcorn if I'm snacky, but I don't... Feel it's an essential. Are you in front of the front of the theater, back of the theater, mid of the theater? I kind of aim for generally the middle, but I'll sit anywhere. Yeah, really. Right. So it's interesting because I actually have two rituals. Okay. Uh, it depends on what type of theater I'm going to. So the normal go to a theater ritual: always stop at the concession stand and get a pop and a popcorn. That's just that is part of the movie going experience for me. Uh, and then uh, my preference is to sit in the back. Uh, the variation is I happen to live next to a still very functional drive-in. And so whenever possible, I go see movies at the drive-in. And for that, the ritual is I actually make popcorn myself ahead of time. Uh, I make sure I go and get pops uh, for myself so I can bring in my own pop so I can have exactly what I want. Uh, and maybe a, a small like like red vines. Uh, get to the theater find my put my car in the spot and then immediately go to the concession stand and buy dinner because I want to at least pay some money at the concession stand as part of supporting the drive-in to make sure I still have a drive-in to go to yeah uh, there's also the the just sort of practical ritual of checking to make sure my FM radio's batteries are working <laughs> so that I can actually hear the movie because it's an, an FM uh, broadcast audio uh, and uh, if the weather's good, uh, getting the car ready because I take my dog. Mm-hmm. And and when you know when my wife doesn't have something to do the next morning, my wife. <laughs> 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 Which sounds weird, but it, it, to say to say it that way, but she's not always available. My dog always is. Yes. <laughs> Jim. Um, I mean, my typical ritual, if I if normal circumstances, I will go and I will get myself a kids pack because the kids pack is the ideal. Thing to get at any movie concession stand it is just enough popcorn it is a small coke and it is a little thing of usually gummy treats or whatever but okay. it's it's just a little tiny thing of popcorn it's enough to say i have i remember what popcorn is like in these movie theaters it's awesome without getting a gigantic because the small the small is like you yeah know, huge. the size of a toddler yeah so i'm just like okay i'll go and i will get this little little bit of popcorn and this little bit of soda and then i will be fine um, I don't do that as much anymore because the smell of popcorn makes you sick. Uh, I don't really care where I sit so much in the theater. I like to sit somewhere kind of in the middle. Though now, my ritual is that I will look for something on the edge because of your tiny hamster bladder. So you need, to be, my on, story. need yep. to be on the edge. So. so mine is very ritualistic, and I don't know how many people here are really aware of how much ritual I have in it. So I am completely the Sally of when Harry met Sally, like ordering the salad at the restaurant i like to sit on the edge because my bladder is tiny and if i run out i want to run out really fast and come right back in and not have to walk by people i honestly love going by myself um also if i sit on the edge then there's only a, a side portion of people that can annoy me while i'm at the theater um 
I love going by myself because there are so many movies I would have walked out of. I would have walked out of Deliver Us from Evil. Um, I would have locked, walked out of Turbulence that I was taken out on on a date because it was fucking terrible. Um, there's a whole bunch of movies that I would have left, but I'm there with someone else. Also, I don't like any talking. I don't typically buy concessions because I don't like to hear the fucking boxes open. But if I do go to concessions, I love a junior mint. Junior mints mean movie theaters to me. But And they come chilled. And they come chilled, which is kind of awesome. But no, I really love the theater as a solitary experience because I get to pick exactly the movie I want to see and not have to care about what anybody else wants. Mm -hmm. um, and which is why I have a movie screen in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a really like... But, you have but, very specific tastes about how you... I do. I want the dressing on the side. I want this and this and this. But and I am do, with do, you do, about do, the... About the don't want people talking during the movies. Yeah. This is this is a yeah. point of contention in our household, in my household, because yeah. Pete is one of those people who'll be like, who is that guy? I know who that guy is, and go look up on IMDb and tell me while the movie is going. And I'm like, you can tell me afterwards. Rias and I talk so much during movies. The Metro, which is now the AMC Seattle 10, used to have these child rooms in the back. Yeah, these were great. With that, there are four people with babies, so yeah. that people with babies can sit there and be sealed off from people, which is great for them. But no one ever used it, so it was basically a soundproof booth with our own speakers where we could close the door, and if we talked during the movie, it didn't bother anybody. It was super fun. I am so glad that the love of movies like made this podcast happen, made this 100th episode happen. Do you have anything to say about us doing this podcast? Well, here I am. <laughs> here okay. we are. Let's go back to Buckaroo Banzai, because no matter where <laughs> you go, there you um, are. I am very happy that you have asked me to be on this podcast. I really enjoy it. Um... I admit that sometimes my research is slipshod and my opinions are annoying. <laughs> Me too! Perfect partnership! But, yeah. I said that very um. loudly and I'm okay with that because it's my goddamn podcast. Okay. <laughs> so that's what I have to say. I hope that this podcast will not put people off, to, off of listening to future episodes, which I swear to God will be about horror movies. Don't worry, <laughs> most of us won't be on them. <laughs> but I'm glad you were on this one. So, uh, talk to you guys in two weeks. Uh, happy 100th episode of Don't Read the Latin. Yay! Hooray! Yay! Don't Read the Latin can be found at don'treadthelatin.com, on Twitter at drtlpodcast, on Tumblr, or at facebook.com slash don'treadthelatin. Please rate us on iTunes and tell your friends and fiends about us. We're dying to meet them. <laughs>